I made him a promise. I would become like him. My flesh, steel. My nerves, wire. My mind wiped clean. No thoughts. No feelings. Nothing. I would be free. If that's what you wanted, why did you leave? Because six months ago, London crossed the land bridge, and Thaddeus Valentine came within my reach. Now the story of an eclectic fan base who lost touch with reality and the one podcast that somehow holds them all together. It's the Substandard Expanded Universe. You are currently listening to the SSEU podcast. The SSEU is the 51-week-old podcast dedicated to hot takes about Star Wars Disney and pop culture from a substandard perspective. I am Thomas, your host with a slight accent. And as always, I am joined by Ryan and Chris. How are you? Always. Always? 51 weeks. Wow. I know. It's almost a a year. Almost 52 episodes. I'm going to be sad when it's all over. You're going to be sad when it's all over? Because I've got to be honest, as much as you've whined about me being late, I thought you'd be relieved. Well... This. My best friend was always there on time to hang out with me while we we're waiting for you, Ryan. Mm, one last sting in there. Are you probably <laughs> going to do another one next week? So <laughs> I'll do my best. We have a lot of things to cover this episode, so let's jump right into it. Chris, I believe that you have a quiz for me and Ryan. Yes, I do. People keep asking you about South Dakota food ever since. You know, way back when I gave the recipe for the South Dakota martini and various other South Dakota delicacies, the South, uh, the lunch burritos that are served here, people have been asking me, can we get more content based around South Dakota food? So this, so I have a quiz on South Dakota food for you guys today. Are you ready? I've never been more ready for anything in my life. <laughs> Ryan's holding a gun of some sort. Um... <laughs> He's ready. Okay. Um, do you see that? Do you see that trigger discipline, though? I, I do see that trigger discipline. So fire your toy gun in the air. Um, if you want to buzz in, this is a multiple choice quiz. No, actually, say your name to buzz in. It's multiple choice. So you need to wait until I'm finished with all the choices. You can't buzz in. So how how many questions? There are seven questions. Seven questions? Okay. I mean, we'll see. Like, I might cut one. Like, if you guys are really slow. Uh, all right, you ready, Ryan? Ryan, you ready? I'm. I just shot you. I'm ready. Right. <laughs> Kukin was established as the state dessert in the year 2000 after it failed to pass during the 1999 legislative session. What is Kukin? Letter A. Another word for Vienna bread, or as you may know it, a Danish. B. Some perverted Swedish dessert. C. German dough pie made with custard and fruit, or D, Polish fry bread? Ryan. Ryan. E, the penis. I will take (laughs) what's the next dessert for 2,000. (laughs) 
Um, wrong game? Thomas. <laughs> Thomas. Thomas. Uh, C. C is correct. Did you know that, or was that process of elimination? Yes. It, it, yeah, both. Yes. Yes and. Wait, which question did he answer? Did he answer? Because I got the first question right, so he already answered the second question? No, Ryan, <laughs> you are... You need to drink some water. Uh, number two... <laughs> What is an Indian taco? Letter A, a taco made with curry and naan bread. B, it's a trick. It's not really a thing. C, it's a thing, but it doesn't resemble a taco. It's bison meat on a tortilla covered with slices of cheddar cheese. Or D, tacos served on fry bread instead of taco shells. Ryan, B, I will take um, letters that start with X for (laughs) 6,000. Um, again, we are not playing Jeopardy, um, and you did not answer the form of question. Wait a second. Letters that start with X or not is not a category. (laughs) It is not. Uh, Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, Thomas. D. D is correct. It's almost like you have been to South Dakota. I see what's going on. I I have been to South Dakota for uh, Thanksgiving last year. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Question number three. Which you know, place... you know who, who? Let's all raise our hands. Who hasn't been to South Dakota for Thanksgiving? Oh, I'm Ryan. My Ryan, you you've been uh, invited this year. Uh, I don't, I don't. I think it was a non non-invitation. <laughs> invitation. Un-vitation? All right. Yeah. Question number three. What flavor of ice cream was de- invented in South Dakota? Flavor of ice cream that ice was cream, invented yes. in South Dakota. Letter A, cookies and cream. Letter B, vanilla. Letter C, Neapolitan. Or letter D, butter brickle. I'm gonna let Thomas get it wrong so that then I can get it right. Okay, uh, my guess is A. A is correct. Thomas, what I don't the- have- yes, you're running yes! the table. I don't even understand how. This <laughs> question number four. Shit? Question number four is going to trip you up. I'm I'm sure of it. What is the South Dakota delicacy known as tiger meat? A. Raw hamburger seasoned and cured used as a dip with crackers. B. Exactly what it sounds like. Tiger meat. C. Ground mountain lion seasoned with cumin, coriander, and cayenne pepper. Or D. Bison meat flavored with prairie gravel and tumbleweed. You want to take a shot, Ryan? Apparently, it doesn't matter when I go, because even when I say the right answers, Thomas gets it right. So when you said the right answer, letters starting with X, you think that was the right answer? <laughs> that was the next category. Uh, All right, R- Ryan, go first. Well, you, go first. Let me think. Pick one. Let me think. Go over the answers one more time. Read me the answers hey. one more time. So we're, tiger meat, what is that? A, raw hamburger seasoned and cured and used as a dip with crackers. B, exactly what it sounds like, tiger meat. C, ground mountain lion seasoned with cumin, coriander, and cayenne pepper. Or D, bison meat flavored with prairie gravel and... I'll go... uh, Ryan. (laughs) I will go with uh, A, Charlie Sheen diced up into a bunch of pieces because he's a dipshit. (laughs) That is correct. And Ryan gets... So Ryan has a correct answer. All right, question number five. We have three more, boys. It is common for South Dakotans to mix this with their beer a tomato juice b cranberry juice c lime juice 
D, red wine. Thomas? Ooh, well, there's a tie, but we'll go with Ryan since he's, you know, losing. I didn't say my name. I said tomato juice. <laughs> my name is not tomato juice. <laughs> well, like, then you get it incorrect. No, 51, but that's correct. 51 weeks, and you have no idea what, like, I, like it's not even close to the start of my name. I mean, you have no idea. Like, you're just... All this time, you, I thought you were tomato juice. <laughs> Thought you were one of the one of the Juice Brothers. Your name is Tomato. I'm one of the California Tomatoes. Name is V8. Uh, okay, number six. Yet Gosh, another V8. Yet another South Dakota food named after what the heck did I write? Okay, there's another South Dakota delicacy. It's named Recount. Recount. He doesn't even know what questions he wrote down. So how does he no, know no, no, no. I was wrong on the first three? I wrote South Dakota twice in the question. Okay, another South Dakota delicacy is yeah, something called collage. What is collage? Uh, num- uh, letter A, the way South Dakotans say goulash, the spelling and pronunciation changed when the perverted Swedes adopted. I love a cloth. Uh, B, prairie chili made with bison and caraway seeds served with fry bread. C, a Czech puff pastry with fruit in the middle. Or D, ice water served with just a bit of dust from the Badlands. Ryan, uh, C. Ryan's a C, and that is correct. <laughs> and you guys are now tied at three apiece, so we that's need a, this. That's a, there's Germans and Texans in Texas that make cloches. Okay, all right. Well, numbers, this is this this one guy, this question, guys, is for all the beans. All right? What beans? is the South Dakota delicacy known as Chislick? A, salted cubes of meat fried in oil. B, the term for eating licorice while listening to Kenny Chesney. C, any perverted Swedish cream-based soup. Or D, licorice made with choke cherries. Thomas! 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 Brian, that Kenny Chesney bit was a good joke. <laughs> a! A! Thomas says A. A is, a is correct. Uh, and he knows that because I took him to Urban Chislick. That's not fucking fair! <laughs> And Thomas wins. Let's so do our secret best friend handshake right now. I'm going to find a bus. <laughs> Speaking of buses, I think, Thomas, are we going to do our advice column next? We're getting a lot of positive feedback on the advice column. I think I think we're really helping a lot of people. So um, we, we got this uh, this this uh, writer writes in. All right. I'm going to do my advice as Matthew McConaughey. All right. All right. All right. All right. Uh, that was terrible. Uh, edit that out. Um, <laughs> dear SSEU podcast, what can we do with a boss who urinates in a cup in his office and then dumps it in the kitchen sink even when we, all women in parentheses, are sitting there eating lunch? We are certain <laughs> of what's in the cup because it smells, it's yellow. And it sits right on his credenza in plain view. He's even left it outside the office, forgetting to empty it. A few weeks ago, I was washing my lunch dishes, and he dumped it right on top of my stuff. I was pretty much in shock. I just couldn't believe it. Is there something wrong here that I'm not getting? He's the owner, the boss, in his 70s, and very respected... But I don't understand this. Do you guys like my inflection? That's I, I hope so. I'm gonna go out of character for a second and say, "Do you really know someone that this is happening to, Chris?" Because 
I'm on the phone with the police right now, and I will, <laughs> I'll have them sent over because I don't know dude, the person. This dude's a pervert. Pervert. This is a genuine a advice. I took the R out of pervert. It's just pervert now. <laughs> it's a pervert. Okay, but I don't understand this. No one knows what to say. We feel that if we said something, he would deny it. And since he's the boss, who knows what would happen? Is there yeah, any way to approach this? Pouring your urine onto people's... I'm not done. The only other males in the office are related to him. Someone did mention it to one of them, but nothing has changed. Okay, Ryan, go ahead. I'm pissed right now. Anyway, so I'm going to go into Matthew McConaughey character. All right, all right, all right. Um, You know, I would just... Let me... Give me your bank account information. I'm going to send you enough money to fly down here to Austin... And I'm gonna put you up in the nicest hotel because the the best buses in the city go right by the best hotel in Austin, and I will be right there with you, holding your hand right before you step out in front of that bus, and I will be the the person that gets a shovel and scrapes your body off of the Austin streets, and I'd be proud to put you in the best Austin cemetery. Thank you. So, so Ryan suggests, in Matthew McConaughey's voice, <laughs> that you throw yourself in front of a bus. Thomas, do you do you have any advice for this person? It, it, it does seem like the problem isn't with the boss, but it is actually with this person who is complaining about... Who has a problem with someone dumping urine? Like, what's the big deal, right? Yeah, like, I, I don't understand... I don't understand it. Like, is is there like a phobia? Is there, is there a problem from this person's youth? I'm I'm not sure what the problem is. So Ryan, uh, Thomas, 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 Thomas. Yeah. Are, so so this person shower urinator. I I'm on occasion, and so sure. there's uh, a drain. There's a drain. The, yeah. Different and, pipes go different places. Pipes go no. Pipes all <laughs> go to the same place. Yeah, and so if they have a problem with this, if they are truly offended by it, the only plausible option to me appears to be that they should seek help. They should go to someone, you know, like... like a church or what? No, no, like, like, like a head doctor, like a psychiatrist. And they should lay down and they should... That's what I said. And they should think about what they have done. And uh, I, I think they would they would become at peace with it. That's what I said. What 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 okay. do you what I, do you think, Chris? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's a toxic work environment. I I wonder about this person and their job Extremely prospects. Toxic. How how badly do you need this job? Is is what I wonder. Like the 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 second I see my boss carrying a glass of urine around, I don't know. I I'd, I'd rather starve. You know. Then I mean, if my yes, my if you pulled my employees, they'd only be able to like like only half of them have seen choose, you choose like two in. or three times a month. Yeah, max, max, max. Yeah. That's, and a bad that's just when you ask them to carry your urine. But yeah, I don't like. Isn't plain view? That's gross. To and and like, why are you dumping it in the sink? Remember, Daniel, like, why don't you bring it to the toilet if you're really if you really feel the need to continue? Like, if you're so compulsive like a if you're so compulsively tied to your work that you can't take bathroom breaks that you're urinating in a cup why can't you at least dispose of it in the bathroom so i 
this is something that you I think that you just really need to bring to the Lord in prayer. Um, and uh, in all likelihood, like just more church attendance. Um, find a local church. Go every week and and That's what I said. pray. All right. So thank thank you for um for. I feel your... like I said the same as both Thomas and Chris. So yeah. Okay. Do that. Yeah. We thank you for for your interest, and we're really glad to 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 touch your lives in this. Really Send important... us an email. Send us yeah. an email. Well, we're happy to help. Better than a therapist because you get three options. Like a therapist is like a dick and like saying like. Here's what you should do, and they just give you the one option. Or, or, or even worse, we're like three like, therapists. How did that make you feel? Yeah, the, I'm telling you, the therapist doesn't care how you feel. We tell you right up front. We don't care how you feel. We're telling you <laughs> what you should do. I, I just want to say that. Like, so this is really second to last episode. No, I'm not gonna say it now. Oh come on, say it now. Well, I was just gonna. It was something I wrote down. Um. Just that uh, Thomas and I meet before the podcast, uh, and Ryan joins us when he deigns to join us. Oh, which come on! Sometimes 10 minutes in, sometimes an hour in. But when he does join in the call, for those Arrested Development fans out there, it's like he's Tony Wonder waiting in the dumbwaiter. It's like he joins the call, and he just sits there and waits for something for him to comment on, and then he comments. <laughs> it's exactly what it's like, he's Ryan. You know it. I do. I don't say anything until I hear something to where I can make a comment. I'll let you guys. I'm seriously. I've let you guys talk for like six or seven minutes before before I actually before I heard something to where I can jump in and say. And you're like, did someone say wonder? Yeah, no, not really. But you're the Tony Wonder of the podcast. That's uh, yeah, yeah. I, I take it all back. I'm totally on board with this. <laughs> I am Tony Wonder on the podcast. Transition. Transition. I, I, I throw down a smoke bomb and say, did someone say poop? <laughs> Transition. So we so we try to shy away from talking about politics in this podcast, but uh, we have a very special guest for the 51st, the penultimate episode, in uh, Jim Swift. And so, uh, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Jim. So, uh, you realize you're on the show, right? Oh, the show's already going. Did you get a chance to see uh, the debate tonight? Oh, uh, what what was it called? The the melee at CUA? Yeah, a a skirmish in the French Wars. Uh, No, I did not watch it. I only followed it on Twitter, because SoRab is a... I have a lot of things to say about him, but <laughs> you know, we were talking about who might write a piece about this, and I was just like, "Ah, you guys don't pay me enough to write to to watch to watch that to watch that asshole bloviate for." <laughs> you know, I, I think part part of Sorab's game here is to get people to respond to him in a very unfrenchian way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's sort of his like trap, just like he wanted the Senate to have a hearing. On, on the, uh, you know, on, on all this, yeah. and I'm, th- yeah. I'm thinking, like, if you take this to its logical conclusion, is Sorab proposing, like, legitimately proposing that the U.S. Senate have a nationwide drag queen story time? Because yeah. that's what it would be, <laughs> right? Um, be mandated by the time he's done. Yeah, well, you know, Hollywood oblige, and the Democrats would bring them, and Diamond and Silk would be there, and it'd be anyway. But I liked what what Cook said in all of this too. Is just like, it's amazing that like. 
and this is sort of the trumpet Trumpianism of Sorab when he converted Trumpianism, is that his his stupid tweet he's he he couldn't admit that this was stupid and then has had to co- sort of construct a worldview around his wrongness. You know, I mean, it's literally like Sorab and the black sharpie, or Sorab yeah, Sorab in the in, in the cross dressing, you know, sparkling glitter glittery sharpie. He was so normal or somewhat normal on the commentary podcast like was it just j-pod like holding him back for like is this who he always was or, or was he just... radicalized in a period of four months yeah so so i i've never met him personally i don't know him personally mm-hmm. or at all um i liked the last iteration of so rab but my understanding is i mean if you look at his cv my my personal history is you guys might know was like he was dunking on Elizabeth Warren and like like taking really mean personal attacks on her and like look I think Elizabeth Warren overstated things I think that you know she used things to advance her career but yeah. it doesn't mean you need to be like constantly snide about it right like you can right. do that in kind of a straight like a wait, straight wait shot. wait you don't need to call her Focahontas for the rest of her life oh my god correct so. <laughs> At, at this time, he was promoting his book on his conversion to Catholicism and why Catholicism and I as a Catholic is so yeah. great. And I was like, oh, come on, man. Like, do you really need to do that? And then he launched it like an eight hour tirade where he was like, you know, Jim Swift is terrible. You know, like everyone hates him. You know, oh, I remember this on Twitter where it was just directed at you for some reason. That's that's when he blocked me. During, well, then, during that time, oh, I think yeah. he blocked then he, me too. Then, then he blocked everyone, deleted uh-huh. his account came back and then said, I'm, I'm not going to talk about politics on here. Clearly, he didn't follow through on this in a way. But <laughs> right. I, I, I think his publisher was like, wait, we're selling a book on like why you're, you're a great to... Catholic. And then you go and do this. And like, I, I don't know. I think the guy is probably a little mentally unbalanced in all of this. But what's clear to me and like looking back now, because again, not knowing him, not being friends with him, I liked the last iteration. I liked what he wrote a commentary. I liked what he said yep. on the commentary podcast, probably because it was not dissimilar from where I stood ideologically. And then that all changed. And that's fine. People change. But I think the one thing that Sohab has is a North Star uh, in his constant is that he's a joiner and and he has the zeal of a convert. And in Catholicism, we have a joke that like converts are the worst. Because you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they join the religion and then they're like, they want to tell you about like what the religion thinks. It's just like, cool. You know, I went to Catholic high school, grade school and college, um, <laughs> you know, but yes, please tell me about the religion. You know, it's been part of my entire life. Yeah. You know, and, and there are shitty Catholics. There are a ton of them. You know, it's 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 a large number. I, I, I joked to a friend tonight. I was just like, oh, so did, you know, did a Mary convert to Frenchism at the end of this? Because that would be like – the big plot twist is that he's found something new to continue. <laughs> that would be <laughs> all of a sudden. Yeah, he's totally he's writing a book about Frenchism. I didn't watch it. Some people were, and I was preparing for the BATF show and making dinner, putting the girls to bed. But uh, poor Andrew Egger drew the short straw, and <laughs> oh, he watched it. Oh well, he he he's had to watch it after the fact, and I okay. think and I think he's he's probably. I mean. Jonathan, I think, would be no offense to Andrew, who, who may or may not ever listen to this podcast, but I would say it to his face. Probably not. <laughs> on staff, he's probably like maybe the second best person to do it. Jonathan, knowing Sorab and being such a devout Catholic, would be the best. But Andrew uh, will approach this from someone who, like me, has never met him, is not friends with him, 
and while he is a godless Lutheran, um, can I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, but uh, he can, uh, he has a David French sort of persona to him. Well, there isn't that. such yeah. thing uh, as Lutheran integralism, is there? It's never been tried. <laughs> <laughs> never been tried. Okay, now well, let us let us not forget. Horeb also was the one who said that Shannon Last is a smooth operator. <laughs> she puts out this public persona that she's this caring Catholic woman behind the scenes. I mean, part of that is, I mean, not to, to, to reveal too much of the curtain, is you know, Jonathan and Shannon during all of this were like trying to be like, guys, guys, guys. And I, I, I mean, I, as you guys know, like with the Ben Dominic and Ben Dominics of the world and the Federalist, I mean, I, I get my share of Twitter fights, right? But all I said was one thing to Sorab, and I never responded to him. And he went nuts. And, like, emails were involved. And Jonathan and Shannon were trying to be like, come on, Jim's a good guy. You don't need to go after him like this. Like, they were trying to, like, be peaceful. I remember originally, like, that's she what was de- it, She was DMing like, him and trying to make peace. He was just interested in becoming, like, talked about by... Um, you know, doing this. I, I think the mad. I think what made him really mad was that I got him with one tweet, and he went crazy. And I and I didn't like sink to his level. Just the one tweet, and then just letting him do whatever he wants just drove him crazy. So, Jim, how, how's life in Woodbridge? I mean, do you do you have a lot of wood jokes? Talk about going back and to the house, and you know, in the wood. Charlie Cook made this point earlier tonight, and I've heard it from. Someone that all of us know previously in that Sora Bamari is just moving from ideology to ideology where he can enter it with a religious seal and just be a very zealous supporter of it, whatever that might be. And this person predicted that in, say, I don't know, four years, he will have moved on to something else. I think so, Rab is a schemer because, uh, you know, it's the schemers that put you where you are. You were a schemer. You had plans, and uh, look where that got you. I just did what I do best. I took your plan, David French, and I turned it on itself. <laughs> I'm not as good at movies as the other guys, but impressions are. <laughs> that was pretty good. Which I, look, if here's where I am, and JBL, who's admitted he's a, a, a squish on a lot of these things, if here's where I am, and JBL's a squish. You have to go like right through, through like forty feet through my outdoor wall, <laughs> and I mean maybe fifteen feet away you get to like a Ross or a Michael Burton Doherty, and then like seventy five feet away in my neighbor's lawn is So Rab and the Trad Cats. Yeah, um, you know, and there was a line in the debate where uh, so, like we this ta- whole freedom thing was a mistake. Yeah, we we were talking about this on the BATF show, which is no longer video because Google killed Hangouts. A live hangouts, so it's audio only. It's probably going to kill the show, but we still have a Patreon base. Maybe we can, you know, let it die and, and rebuild it because it's a good concept. But but we were talking about this, and there was a quote from this uh, where Doubt had said, "Well, you know, there's a difference between having Josh Howley have a hearing on uh, Drag Queen, uh, not Happy Hour, Drag Queen Story Hour, and then there's like a mile of difference between that and like an ethno state." And I'm like, okay, if those are the boundaries, I'm to the left of that because I don't even think we should be having Senate hearings on what uh, state and local. I mean, yeah. almost all libraries are, are 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 locally run. There are, I guess, yeah. some state libraries. There's this thing called federalism. I mean, it's just one of the things 
I have kind of determined, just like with the whole show rab thing, I used to engage in back and forth on Twitter and I would be up. This was pre kids, pre dog and pre Woodbridge. <laughs> you know, I'd stay up till three in the morning and I would argue with people and all this stuff. It's not worth my time. And so for me, I mean, it, it is sort of like a um, 48 laws of power. You just discover a man's thumbscrew. And if you can just get that one statement in there, just say that, you know, like make your point. And I think a lot of people, so Rab among them, J-Pod to a degree, I think he's learning his lesson though. I mean, now he's doing the DMs and now people are sharing his DMs. But like, if if you are a Twitter blue check, now I'm, I'm a nobody, right? I mean, it's it's weird how some of like- uh, the, Aren't you a blue check? I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a born again blue check, but yeah. I, I mean, I'm a relative nobody so far as things are concerned. I'm not a TV personality. Um, you know, I'm not really a known known. Um, it was, it is funny how weird the kind of MAGA alt right American greatness people are obsessed with the bulwark yeah. of the weekly standard. Yeah. I, I get a kick out of that. But the thing that kind of occurred to me is like, I am lucky enough, even being a relative nobody. I mean, I'm not a JVL. I'm not a, a Bill Crystal or a Charlie Sykes or a J pod or someone, but I have a platform that affords me the ability to speak my mind and express my opinion in a way that, you know, most people don't have that opportunity. And it, it is fortunate. Now I do engage with, you know, the, the proles, so to speak. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Uh, that, that's that's us. Thursday. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. But um, the, what with these folks, I think in, in Twitter is just so addictive in this personality. And this is kind of what Holly hints at. But a lot of these sort of influencers, uh, and, and Bill is susceptible to this. Bill is a total Twitter addict. And I remember when Bill was like, should I get on Twitter? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, you shouldn't look into your replies ever. I'm going to turn off every notification on your phone. Like, just just sh- share your thoughts. Don't engage with people. It's not worth your time. Um, but it took me a while to learn that, you know, and that's why Jonathan is not like tweeting, right? That's kind of why he gave up Twitter. It's not worth his time. I still do it because I'm not Jonathan. You know, I'm like 11 years behind him. Work to do. I have uh, I have really two questions. Okay. The first is, what do you make out of the Trump hurricane Sharpie thing? So I, I wrote a piece for us. Uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but on on Thursday, uh, September 5th. And I wanted to call it Donald and the Purple Sharpie because as a parent of young kids, I think of everything in terms of its relation to toddlers. And that's kind of an homage to Harold and the purple crayon. And the thing that has struck me about this, and I was clearly poking fun at Molly Hemingway for her famous strategic silence tweet. (laughs) Imagine Earth 2 if President Obama publicly tweeted. You don't know for sure when Trump tweets something, whether it's Dan Scavino or Trump, but it's pretty much just one of those two people, so far as I know. Yeah. Imagine that, like, President Obama's Twitter account, which he probably didn't even ever really have much to do with because, you know, he had a secured government cell phone, whereas Trump has a fucking iPhone. But, you know, China, (laughs) you know, like we don't need to go down that tangent of hypocrisy. Um, But imagine President Obama's Twitter account tweeted out some disinformation. And then uh, we got to the point where he's like called on this disinformation and then he prints out a big equivalent of what we call floor chart in the Senate or the House. You know, a basically like three by three and a half by two foot 
you know, plasterboard with an image on it that's four days old showing people, the world, on national television, in Twitter and everywhere, a four-day-old map in which he's modified it to show further disinformation. Can you imagine what Fox News would be doing if President Obama did this? I mean, it would make, like, the tan suit look like, you know, Trump, you know, Trump's dentures fell out or something. His fake teeth were, like, slipping or something. Um, And so... My, my, my argument in all of this is everyone on the right, and, and it's not that, you know, the Trump supporters, you know, they should be ashamed, of course, because there's literally something that's like a denigration of the office and a shame to our country that happens virtually every day that this yes. guy does. <laughs> but it's the anti-anti-Trump people who are like, we're not supporters, but like they're implicitly defenders. Right. Um, you know, because you know all these other options: Bill Well, Jeff Walsh, maybe Justin Amash, Mark Stanford. They're they're bad. Orange man, good. Uh, <laughs> the people you know, that talk about Trump derangement syndrome syndrome as if it's a real thing, like those people annoy me. Like, like because people who aren't even Trump supporters will will say like, "Oh, you have Trump derangement syndrome." Like, like it, like that's like that even exists and pretend that it's a real thing. That uh, hey, Be- Beth Bethany. Bethany was uh, was using that term like uh, uh, in regards to Charlie, I think, last week. This, that, uh, something came up recently where someone said it very cogently in a way that I'm not going to say it now. But but that is the important – like he does enough wrong that it's important to be precise and honest about how you criticize him because like – when you have dishonest critiques of our president, it just galvanizes his supporters and the anti-anti-Trump people. So, like, literally every day, like Jim said, like, there's there's something to get to be like, oh, my gosh, that, this is an embarrassment. Like, this, like we're you, being you asked to believe right. something. That's, yeah, get it right. That's that's all I'm saying. Get it right. Because, like, when, when – when, it when becomes that, a Yule log on the fire of anti-anti-Trumpism. Yep. You know. Yeah. So when – and so the left is is happy to make stuff up or or to to uh, and then that's so frustrating to me because like all yeah that's a good Jim you're you're one with the metaphors it's a so I'm I'm a I'm a big metaphor guy but I, in my piece I go back to I mean let's like everyone remembers birtherism right I mean yeah yep. we don't even need to go down that road in Trump's role in this but what a lot of people forget is after birtherism didn't sink Obama in 2008 in 2012 Republicans tried using BLS basically BLS birtherism. BLS is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is a subset of the Census Bureau. And they suggested that after the like, recession is, you know, the unemployment rate started getting better, that Obama's cr- Chicago cronies were like putting their thumb on the scale to help him beat Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney knows business. And like the whole thing was bullshit. And that didn't work either. And so then a couple of years later, Donald Trump, who it was just like, I'm going to try that again. And we forget all of this stuff. And uh, it's just I, I was just dismayed by how Republicans treated Obama for scandals that weren't scandals. And then now there's an obvious scandal and they're just kind of like, oh, do you think Donald Trump intentionally added things to the Sharpie? Yes. Or yeah. You you do think like it wasn't a mistake. It was like intentionally he did that? Yes. Okay. But- so so in in my in my piece today, Thursday, mm-hmm. September 5th, I I wrote Trump when accused of doing the doctoring denied it. And he said, "No, no, no. I don't I don't know. I don't know." 
And I said, is it possible that an aide did it? Sure. But Donald Trump in the Oval Office with a Sharpie is like a toddler in a room with cake. When the frosting <laughs> is all over the kid's face, it's hard to believe because seriously, the man loves Sharpies. And then a couple hours, uh, then later today, after I had published, we had published this story, uh, Washington Post reported, it was Trump who used the black Sharpie to mark up an official National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration map, which he displayed in an Oval Office briefing Wednesday, according to a White House official who spoke on a condition of anonymity to discuss internal deliberations. <laughs> Quote, no one else writes like that on a map with a black Sharpie, which added Alabama into the hurricane's potential pathway inside the loop of the marker. And then I post a picture of a kid in a baby seat with like frosting all over his face because I fucking called it. Why did he do this? Okay, well, AIDS don't carry Sharpies around. Easy. <laughs> that, that's that's number one. Like Sharpies are not in your typical government AIDS repertoire. Like, he did it because there's something wrong with him. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky to have a fucking pen. You know, it used to be you'd have a BlackBerry in your personal phone and some business cards. Made, like you'd be lucky to have a pen, but Sharpies, no. Trump, Trump has long loved Sharpies. That's beyond redoubt. So, like, that's why I went with the cake analogy. And <laughs> um, I have no doubt that in aid, if Trump was just like, eh, can you put a little bubble, including Alabama? Like, yeah, clearly someone would have done that because. There are no more adults left. But in it would have looked better if he if he gave it to an aide. It would have looked better than than what it looked like. Yes, and and that's why it suggests that it's him because he could have just gone like, look, a competent liar, uh, elected official would be like, okay, take this map, yep. manipulate the circle, Photoshop out that line, and make it go. Better. Now that would have been caught too, right? Well, sure, but um, it would have looked. Not like someone just drew on it right before the, the project. Jim, Jim, do you know if do do does everyone in the White House have to sign a NDA? Uh, it's my understanding they do, but they're they're not enforceable. Okay, I'm just curious. Like after this administration down the well, road, but like, the, what, like, what Trump, do we? Trump like, said, what kind of has, has, hasn't like Trump proven that he will at least like take you to court over it, nope. where it's enforceable in that? Oh, okay, I didn't uh, know if that's what they he, were using. It he, just like. He Having said that he said that like, no, oh, that you know that bitch. I'm he didn't call her a bitch, but you know, <laughs> essentially like that bitch on Amorosa, and then that right. other guy who wrote that book. You know, they signed NDAs, and I'm going to get them. Uh, so far as I know, no case has been filed because uh, there's this thing called discovery, and um, executive yeah. privilege. Executive privilege does not, and, and it's sort of unprecedented, right? I mean, this is this is not a normal thing. I never. You know, I never had to sign any of these sorts of things when I worked for the government. Right. So I'm just I'm just kind of curious. Like, I don't know. I I don't know who posted it. But I saw a tweet recently picture. It said Trump posted this picture of him with Obama just to show that he's taller than Obama. So, like, I, I want to hear it straight from the aide, like someday for someone to be like, yeah, Trump came to me and he's like, can you find a picture? Like, I just want to I just want to hear all those stories someday. Well, I have a story about Obama. What are you talking I work- about? I worked on the same floor as Obama when he was a senator, and before he was running for president, he used to smoke. I mean, we all know he smoked. He used to right. smoke outside of the Hart Senate office building like a fucking chimney, <laughs> and he and his hair was gray as shit. And oh, I mean, really? Yeah, you I mean, not, not like super gray, not oh, like George okay. W. Bush at the end of his sure, presidency, sure, sure. Day, but you know, miraculously, he's running for president and has like no gray hairs, right. and. 
Uh, he would not smoke in public. He would go across the street to this building that is now part of the Heritage Foundation and um, where they had private offices because you can't do campaign work from your official office. <laughs> <laughs> You've done some pretty good impressions here. Do you have a Bill Crystal you can do? Here he is, Chris Haberman, trying to push off Jim Swift. It's only midnight. <laughs> Jim's not going to go to bed for hours. That's what he That's what he does. Barely shows up at the bulwark. He's just saying, get off the show. Swift, leave. Go away. I just spilled my drink. <laughs> Swift wants to talk about Woodbridge, tell you about his wonderful new house, his twins and his dog. Mike's <laughs> never in the office. Haberman's just like, get off the show. We don't want to talk to you anymore, Swift. Jeez. Oh, I, I have a question for you. <laughs> like, real question. It was Thomas that told us you only had 15 minutes. Before no, no. He, Thomas you know, like, he jump on for 15 minutes. <laughs> no, that, that was his bid. Dude, I, I'll, I could sit here till 2 in the morning. I'm working, <laughs> I'm working from home tomorrow. Eliana Johnson's taking over um, Continuity Spot, editor-in-chief editor of, of um, Free Beacon. T- tell, us, tell us about the inner workings of D.C. and, and moving from – Political journalism at Politico um, to to uh, Free Beacon. Uh, CNN, as far as I'm aware, is is dropping her. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I didn't find it so interesting. And if you saw it, Sunny Sunny Bunch like jumped in. And uh, here's a personal note: I've known Eliana Johnson since like 1999. So wow, geez. what was she then? Like 10? No, that was 20 years ago. I'm. Like yeah, we're like sixteen, seventeen years okay. old. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, because her dad is Scott Johnson from Powerline. Oh, you, you you're, being, you're being very literal, Jim. Oh, you're no. like, no, she wasn't ten; she was sixteen. <laughs> so, uh, so I've known her when we went to Young America's Foundation conferences. Uh, I can't; I'm not like personal friends with her, or close with her, uh, but I followed her career and I've kind of seen her around Washington over the years. The thing that I would say is when you when you create something and you have you like a first big administrative change, a, a, a workplace or a club or a fraternity or something, it, it, it builds a culture. Right. And the Free Beacon clearly has its culture. I don't think Eliana um, was brought on to like change that culture. I think, you know, if, if they didn't think that she would be a good fit with the culture, they wouldn't have brought her on. I, I think there's a lot of similarities between her and Matt. I mean, they're both very smart people, well-read um, and uh, serious people, but who also have a sense of humor. Um, I do worry uh, about Bill McMorris's future there, as I joked with him uh, <laughs> earlier tonight. And I, I'm, I'm kidding. Just okay. because I, I, always, I, always, I always like to sow the, sow the seeds of doubt for Bill because he's, <laughs> he's Catholic. I think it's a good move for her. Uh, the whole CNN thing. Well, one, I mean, there aren't a lot of editors in chief that you see on cable news because like true working editors in chief don't typically have that time. Steve Hayes might've been an exception because Steve was already a Fox news contributor. And that's kind of was a large part of his career before he became editor in chief of the weekly standard. But I feel like I saw a lot of Katrina Vanden Heuvel back in the day. Yeah. And, and maybe that was a different, uh, way that they were organized. I mean, not not all publications are organized the same way. But from what I know about Continetti's work ethic and the way the Free Beacon is run, which is to say little, I mean, I have a bunch of friends over there, of course, um, is, you know, like Continetti was not like a figurehead, right? Like, you know, he, he very much involved. It's a very involved job. And um, Eliana is going from being a White House reporter to being an editor in chief. 
And you can be an editor-in-chief who is reporting-focused, or you could be an editor-in-chief who is editorially focused in the commentary, or you could be a little mixture of both. And, you know, I, I don't know much about the, the financing of all this stuff, but I suspect that between what you'd make at Politico and being kind of a CNN contributor in your mid-30s, um, taking over an editor-in-chiefship of, you know, a, a respected uh, well-funded publication uh, more than makes up for that. Well, maybe more than makes up for it, but I, I don't think that like you know some people were insinuating that CNN and her parting ways was like putting her in the poorhouse. Uh, I doubt that would be the case because that like that would be like con- like she probably clearly thought all this through and that would be taking mm. a demotion. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. So I'm I'm pretty sure she'll be fine. Uh, I'm yeah. excited to see what she's going to do over there. Um, I have immense amount of respect for her, um, not just as someone I knew when I was a a young, brash person who read Ann Coulter and Michelle Malkin and Patty, <laughs> and only to realize that they were all full of shit, <laughs> and, and many it's, of them were racist. She's like, from Minnesota, and I'm from Ohio. It's not like, you know, we're, we come from some, like— Eliana Johnson's from Minnesota? Yeah, it's not like we come from some, like, elitism track where, like, you know, went so, to Georgetown Prep or some shit. How would you compare the Free Beacon to other conservative publications like National Review or I don't know, like the Federalist, whatever have you? Well, I think I think it's hard because um, most conservative publications have flight ninety three themselves into the fields of Pennsylvania in terms of credibility, um, and the Free Beacon never was in the same lane as any of them. You know, they they created their own lane. What is that lane? What is the free beacon lane? Okay, I mean, there's the there's the traditional joke in politics that there's the beer there's the beer lane and there's the wine lane, and you know now they're joking that like maybe Pete Buttigieg is the champagne lane, um, <laughs> the free beacon would be like the Kate Upton lane, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like with the free beacon, which was when it was started, was like incubated at a nonprofit, right? And then they went for profit, which was sort of a joke because let's I. I I don't know their financials, but like publications tend not to make money. Um, <laughs> but you know, they, they 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 went out from under that umbrella and into a new thing where they were no longer part of a nonprofit; they were part of a, a for-profit enterprise. And when they announced it, they had like Kate up and stuff. And Continetti was just saying like, "We look forward to competing with our peers at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like funny stuff. And our peers, <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean. Uh, it, it, they are just so unique and incomparable. I would guess that. Yeah, like, I mean that's that's the thing is like Thomas is asking because well, I don't think we as have a good sense of like what it is because like they do good hard reporting like they 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 had some pretty good scoops um, under the Obama administration. They get a ton but, of scoops, but, but they're, they're so they're they're also so irreverent. I mean they're they're man of the year stuff. Um, is Andrew is Stiles great. still with them? Uh, he's. I don't believe he's a full-time employee. He was for a number of years. He was. Then, like he he like sarcastically bought some MAGA hats, and then like, <laughs> did they have to part ways with him? I don't. I don't. Oh. I don't think they parted ways with him on purpose. I think he went to go do something else. But right. now he's like writing for them like periodically. And I love Andrew Styles. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. But like, they are they are incomparable, right? I mean. You can compare and contrast the Weekly Standard and National Review because they're both they were both print magazines. They were both largely similar, even though you know. But you could basically do a, a SWOT analysis, right? Um, maybe the nearest thing that you could compare the Free Beacon to is the Daily Caller, but I would say that like that's night and day. 
Um, yeah. But, I mean... But, right, right. And this is something that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. It's like, if, if you can't approach politics with a sense of humor at all, then... Like, like, I don't know, like, I feel like that's what the Free Beacon does. Like, it still has a sense of humor, and it doesn't treat politics too seriously, and it has, it has fun with it. And yeah. I think that's perfectly fine. Well, and there are also politics with a purpose, right? I mean, Continetti has said this, as I've read, uh, and I forget where. But, you know, I mean, it, it is a means to an end, and that's to advance conservatism. Now, you can look at secondary levels, right? I mean, the Free Beacon has had several alumni go on to do successful things. And so is the Daily Caller and the Weekly Standard. I mean, uh-huh. granted, most of the people who left the Weekly Standard to go on and be successful was because we all got fired two weeks before Christmas by Ron <laughs> Um You know, you're welcome, CNN. Uh, <laughs> David but, Byler, Mike Warren. Yeah. yeah, Haley Bird. Well, Byler went to the Post, but you get my point. Oh, that's right. Like, I meant uh, Holmes. <laughs> yeah, Holmes. Yeah, but you know, still successful. But you know, there there was sort of like a two tiered purpose to it. It, it. it is a place where you can incubate great writing. Like Matthew Walther is a great Free Beacon alumni who works for the Week. Uh, his personal politics are probably not terribly much in line with the Free Beacons, and there is a diversity of opinion over there. But one of the things I, you know, witnessed because I I worked uh, at the Weekly Standard exclusively when I started, uh, I was never there under Bush. I was on the Hill during Bush during the Obama years. And then when it came time to criticizing Republicans, a lot of readers got mad and they were like, you would have, you know, you would have never done this for Bush. It was just like, Oh, oh really? Like, who do, you, who do you think fought Harriet Myers? You know? Um, and then some people would be like, you would have never treated Obama the way you treated Trump. But it was just, oh, you know, like on. for our covers, it was just like, Hey, for your convenience, please see attached the zip file, with, you know, 77 covers with critical, uh, you know, cover, cover, like copies of our cover of, of, of Obama. So, I, you know, I don't think in the Free Beacon differs from the standard in that way and in the bulwark, too. It is not really to me in their kind of purpose to go after Republicans unless those Republicans are like Rand Paul. Yeah. Right? So 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 Mr. Ben Smith, uh, writing for BuzzFeed, described the Free Beacon as a neoconservative <coughs> publication. No, he called them the neoconservative flagship. Do you think that's apt? Uh, well, what else would there be? I mean, if the Weekly Standard still existed, that'd be wrong. But the Weekly Standard doesn't exist anymore. I would say as a reader uh, of them, I would say that their foreign policy focus is, is very much neoconservative. We at the Bulwark you know, are accused of the same thing. We don't focus on as much as foreign policy as maybe the Weekly Standard did. Um, and, we, you know, we have a little free beacon in us, too. I mean, yeah, I think I would have been able to get away with pulling off my Donald Trump as the toddler in the room with cake with frosting on his mouth line at the Weekly Standard. Um, you know, but, you know, we don't have a books and art section. We don't have casual essays or personal anecdotes about, you know, the Indians losing the World Series. Uh, <laughs> but we st- but we still have fun. Going back to your original question, Thomas, it's 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 it is hard to pitch and hold a free beacon because they're such a unique and great publication. You know, I think that's what in fact makes them great is that they were able to look at the current media landscape and or at the time that they were founded, find a niche, exploit it, grow it, grow their audience. And, you know, uh, one of the big problems in conservatism is that they, you know, the olds, 
like Ann Schutz and others, they're like, oh, we have to appeal to the children, right? Um, you know, when it, I was young, they, who they push away immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the problem now is we've created monsters like Turning Point and all these other sorts of things. But when oh I was a gosh. young conservative, when I met Eliana Johnson at Young America's Foundation, when we were like teenagers, was that we would read National Review. We would look up to Fred Barnes. We would look up to Jenna Goldberg. And now it's like we're these kids are supposed to look up to Charlie Kirk. And it's just like, yeah, that's, where does that get you? Um, but, you know, I think the Free Beacon offers a middle ground. They, they do offer younger readers content that is fun and hip. Um, and is also informed. Um, and so they've been able to split that difference and I'm, you know, very happy for them and my friends over there that they've been able to do it. And I think, and I hope Eliana will be a great fit and, you know, uh, can continue the greatness of the free beacon. And one of the things I will say, and and I know I'm ranting here is our audience, the bulwark is similar, but not the exact same as the weekly standard. Of course, you know, you see people criticize stories we put on our aggregator or I link to my newsletters and whatnot. Not once have I gotten a criticism of a story we've linked to at the free beacon. Now I'm not linking to like Kate Upton bikini slideshows, (laughs) but, uh, you know, when they have serious things to say and scoops to break, we link to them. And not once has someone been like, ugh. You guys have linked to those unserious jokers or anything like that. Yeah. But but people have written in to say that about other things. It's like you linked to Megan McArdle. She's such a hack. And and I think that's a testament to what they built at the Free Beacon. It could also be that, you know, our readers aren't like Beltway insiders who are obsessed with the na- media navel gazing and and don't know, you know. So so do you think that people are taking politics or political commentary too seriously in general? I think they're taking it too literally, to quote Selena Zito slash Brad Todd, <laughs> and their myriad of mutual clients. I, don't know, I mean, it just feel like Trump has just like it changed the way that everybody looks at everything. I mean, it's changed the way that I look at Trump coming on the scene has changed the way that I view myself within the conservative party. There was a way that I saw myself before Trump, which was a little more towards the the right, and then post Trump, just like realizing that. Like a lot of people that I liked, I do not believe were like being honest with what they believed at the time. And just which has caused me to become more of, I guess, like a squish, like JVL calls himself. Who, who's your biggest disappointment, uh, Ryan? I mean, the biggest thing I'm embarrassed to say is that I, I liked Ted Cruz. God bless. Trump. God bless, Ryan. Thanks yeah, for and I, I just, I seriously, I feel so stupid. You know, like right pundit on Twitter is just like RBE on Twitter. Who? Oh yeah, I used to follow that guy. He yeah, he was Cruise Crew, and then like now he's sort of gone right into well, tally. He was he was really like during the like the during the primary, he was he was full full on Rubio. And, as, as was I. I mean, and he would, say, he would say things about Cruz just being like not genuine and like he'll do anything. He'll do anything to, you know, get a vote. He'll do anything to get more popular. And I, and I would argue with that guy and I would say like, no, no, because because I, I, I just believed Cruz. That he was, you know, genuine in the things that he was saying. And then after, you know, obviously what happened, like I 
like I just like view everything that he said at the time and it's like, oh yeah, Cruz is just a politician. I well, mean, he's ju- he's jumping on with this Josh Hawley internet shed. And yeah, all this yeah, and that was and as a as as a guy who like sold himself as a constitutional conservative, even as much as the Trump stuff with you know Trump making fun of his wife and his dad and saying his dad killed JFK, like the Josh Hawley, the like that's embarrassing enough. But the fact that he's then like throwing out the Constitution to jump on with Josh Hawley, I, I I honestly can't even believe it. Like I wouldn't vote for Ted Cruz for any at this point. I've been ranting enough, but I have a good story for you guys about the time I got drunk with Ted Cruz. Yes, please. Uh, because I have long been a Ted Cruz hater. Uh, <laughs> good for you. I'm glad you saw it early. Well, I I, I worked in the Senate, and I sure. I kind of I kind of saw it. The irony in all of this is, is that the Ted Cruz that is two bottles of wine in is a guy that I would vote for if that's how he was all of the time. <laughs> Not two bottles of wine in, but like the but kind of candor. He's that guy. Yeah. 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 And all and all politicians are like this in a guarded way. And, and Andy Ferguson wrote a great story, a cover story for us called Wash uh, the Standard called Washington Builds a Bugaboo. And at one point, like Cruz's people gave him access to him where he like was hanging out with him on the campaign trail and they were riding alone in the back of the car with the staffer driving. And then Ted Cruz basically had a string pole, as Andy describes it and started giving his campaign speech. And Andy starts tuning out and like looking at like the sort of Woodbridgean exurban, you know, you know, Texas community and contemplates how many vertebrae he'd fracture if he just opened the door and did the drop and roll. <laughs> Because it was like that insufferable. And Ted and Ted's public persona is that insufferable. So the backstory on this is Benny Johnson, now of Turning Point USA, someone I knew before he got famous and kind of became a douchebag. Um, well, totally became a douchebag. Decided to have these dinners where he would invite conservative journalists to meet with like principals. And it would be catered and there'd be beer and wine and uh, whatnot, and you would just like drink and it would be off the record. So consider that promise kept. But Cruz goes and he just downs two bottles of red wine and he's working. <laughs> I mean, not not like instantaneously, not like, right, you know, right, like, right. oh God, oh God, but like over the course of four hours. And he gave us a ton of access and he was like remarkably candid. And I just thought to myself and all of his answers, and I like, I am on this podcast. I was domineering because most of the other people who were there were like sycophants and dumb shits. And like they had really dumb questions, you know. Uh, and I, I, I was just like. Wait, wait, so, so when was this? Before he was in the Senate? No, no, this was, this was right as he was running against Beto and he was like okay. scared. So the whole point of this was to help him and maybe get some like positive press from conservative media, which I wasn't going to give him, even though. Like drunk Ted Cruz by me was cool. Why can't he show that side of just be that part of himself? Well, no, here's here's the irony in all of this is when he was running against Ted, uh, Donald Trump, Ted said, I might not be the candidate you want to get a beer with, (laughs) but I'll get the car home. The irony is that unlike Trump, he's actually the guy I would rather get a beer with. Yeah. Yes. Having or or two bottles of wine. (laughs) I would much like I much prefer that Ted Cruz. To and the guy all, who pretends that he never drank in his life on the campaign trail. It just it frustrates the hell out of me because that guy I would have me voted too. I would have voted for him. But yeah, you know, it's just So Jim, I'm a Protestant. I'm a Baptist. 
raised Baptist, where I'm sorry, to where my my dad, <laughs> I, I still am. I haven't given it up. Um, it's no, where, like 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 my dad, my dad is like so strict that like if he finds out that someone like you know drinks, he's like, well, I don't know whether they're a question, Christian or not. Like that's that's that like that's how hardline he is on. So, drink. so your dad really liked his New York values comment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's who he was going like he was going yeah. for my dad. Right. Right. Which is an insane thing to do in a in a primary. Like I I, I personally like the New York values comment because I hate New York, but well, Bill, I, I do too. And I don't like well, New York okay, values so, either. So I just think it was my dumb dad. My he, he was going for my dad by because I'm telling you. Ted Cruz uh, campaign persona is that is that he is my dad, that he doesn't drink. You know, he doesn't swear all, 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 all the shit that my dad would have a problem with. That is who Ted Cruz sold himself as. I like Jim said, I would vote for the guy who, you know, has a couple of bottle of bottles of wine and, you know, is a normal person. So this is why you're a Joe Walsh voter. Oh, my gosh. See, Jim, I'm just terrible because, like, when we have you on the podcast, all I want to do is just ask you, like, questions about things I'm curious about that, that no one else is interested in. But, like, like hey, you know, I promised Tom is 15 minutes, but I'm here until 2 a.m. Eastern. So <laughs> open line so, Friday. But but so a lot of us, maybe not Ryan, whatever, screw him. A lot of us are Trump skeptics. Why are you saying we get sick of the fact that almost every single episode that Charlie hosts is about Trump? I don't. I I like it. Almost everybody, you know, of our friends disagrees with me. And I don't love Charlie, but I'm probably, you know, the most pro Charlie of anybody. I mean, I swear, even there's commentary episodes where they're almost like making excuses for Trump from time to time. So. Well, Thomas, I'd counter by saying that, and I mean this with no offense, the SSEU audience is not a perfect circle Venn diagram with what the Bulwark's audience is. It, it just so happens <laughs> that, that that is more true than you know. It, it it just so happens that you know you guys you know it's like a fucked up family relationship where you guys married into all of this and it's Thanksgiving every day. <laughs> You know, Jim with another perfect metaphor. This episode is going to be called Thanksgiving Every Day. <laughs> you know, it's it's very nice that you guys read our site. It's nice that you listen to our podcast and read our newsletters. But, you know, we know that the SSEU is not a monolith. Just like we know our audience differs from what our audience was at TWS. And it's not a monolith. And yeah. one thing yeah. Jonathan will tell you is that one of the big differences, I mean, there are so many between the bulwark and the standard you know, now that we're not under Ryan McKibben's, you know, pressure to publish for publishing's sake. Which we is just, a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. And we've been able to prove our theory that we argued to him all along, which is we think that like three to five pieces that are really well thought out and not just hastily done to respond to the news of the day that have a point to them will do better traffic wise than 15 sort of shitty aggregated posts. Yeah. And that's and that's what the examiner does. Uh, well, they do that like to the value. Like they post like they the examiner posts more than a day than we probably post in a month. They're they're just throwing shit at the wall and hoping it sticks. Our audience, when we come up with a piece, whether it's a piece that I write or JVL writes, or we have a freelancer or one of our few contributors writes, our main question is: Is this unique? And can we build an audience for this story? 
And if the answer to, to both of those questions is no, we don't publish it. That's not the way the examiner worked. That's not the way Media DC wanted the weekly standard to work. Going back to, you know, why people might not enjoy the focus on Trump uh, on our podcast, that's what our audience enjoys because our audience, unlike the Weekly Standard, is not just conservatives. Now, there were liberals who read the Weekly Standard, but people who paid for it were all conservatives and maybe a couple liberals who liked books and arts. But we have a sort of center-right. We have a wandering man in the wilderness true center, if such a thing exists. And then we have center-left people, too. Like it or not, I mean, the focus is Trump, and we're pretty darn focused on why he's an awful guy. He's unfit for office, and I do not mind pointing that out every single day. I recognize this. I recognize the fact that Donald Trump is country president, so a lot of things are going to be about him. Yeah. I don't like him. I would rather topics be about other things. It's like a political Ikea. show. I, yeah, I, like I, Ikea. I, if, if you made episodes about Ikea, I would listen. Well, wait until can you, you, wait until you hear what I talked on, about while you were gone. Can you talk <laughs> about how like the podcast is pretty pretty successful, pretty wildly successful? Yes. And that that's all due to my booking and editing prowess. There were there <laughs> so like Charlie posted about it. Oh, the, the Bethany Mandel truth. Yeah, thing? yeah, and then like there, there were and then um, like Rachel. Rachel replied to Charlie saying like, "Oh, Charlie, these these numbers sound made up," and like obviously I knew she was being sarcastic, but there were some of our friends that honestly thought that Rachel was agreeing with Bethany. Yeah, but I'm like, I'm like, no, the podcast is really, really, it actually is yeah. successful. She well, was, yeah. she the was t- making fun of Bethany. Like it. The, the tough part is Bloomberg Law wrote an article about it, and we had to like part ways with Rachel over this. Um, but then JBL reinstated her because there was a misunderstanding about sarcasm. It's like that. <laughs> it's like that joke from the Brian Regan special where Kim Jong Un decided to outlaw sarcasm, and one of his advisors said, "Yeah, that'll work." You know, <laughs> I appreciate that joke so much. <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking at our metrics right now. We have 5.3 million downloads over 211 episodes. You know, our, our, our podcast averaged between like 30 and 50,000 downloads for the bulwark. You know, the secret podcast only goes to people who donate to the bulwark. Yeah. G- Jim, question. Question. Have you ever seen the movie, the, the, the masterpiece, Mortal Engines? No. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so disappointed to hear that because that's what we're going to talk about on this podcast. Let me effort this for myself. It's a movie oh. it's about cities, cities on cities wheels. Are on wheels. <laughs> oh, okay. I've I've seen this movie, but you know, I can make a if we want to talk about Woodbridge, I can make it like a Woodbridge corollary. <laughs> what if Woodbridge were on wheels? It would be one of those like small scrapper cities. Well, no, like Woodbridge, there, there are like since moving down here. I mean, people call it Hoodbridge. I've come to understand that there are basically three types of cars that people drive in Woodbridge, and there are sports cars, minivans, or ginormous trucks that serve no utility because people live in like these, you know, like <laughs> cookie cutter housing developments. Yeah. It's not like they're and, living. And in you're park. driving an F two fifty. Yeah, or F three fifty with truck nuts. You yeah, know. yeah. And, and chrome and the step up and shit with a gun rack. Yeah. I now, like, I, I understand the minivans because I moved down here because it's affordable. You can get a bigger house. You can get more land and it's kids. 
Yeah. yeah. Minivans, yeah. minivans make sense or CRVs or, or whatnot. Sure. Weird. And then yeah. there's the, like the, the, like the crazy Catholic families that might get like a 17 passenger van. Or, <laughs> but I understand why everyone drives sports cars around here because on the, all of the main drags, I mean, well, the traffic to get down here from DC sucks. The speed limits on all the intervening roads with the community are like between 45 and 55 miles an hour. And in, in the morning, Every green light, you're at- yeah, but in the yeah. morning when you need to get to the VRE or you need to get to your commuter bus lot, like you're gunning it to make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I still, but I still haven't understood the trucks. I just think that you know that's a cultural thing because in, unless you literally have like 15 or 20 acres or you are in the trades or services industry, yeah, there's not really much utility. I remember when I was or a kid. If you're overcompensating for a small penis. <laughs> Well, this this might comp- this might tell you about my penis, but uh, <laughs> when I w- when I was like fourteen, I my dad was like, "If you w- could have any car you want, not that he would buy it for me, what would you want?" And I said, "I would want a Ford Ranger with one of those backs, so I could like go on a road trip across the country with my friends." And my dad said basically like, "Jim, in Cleveland, the only people who drive pickup trucks are poor people or electricians." <laughs> Well, you asked for a Ford Ranger and not an F two fifty, so you yeah, you must Ford be Ranger, in a, a Ford Ranger is practical, <laughs> right? It's it's like a it's, it's a two seater, or you know, you might have the third seat in the back that faces like sideways. Yeah, yeah, you face in in yeah. Oh, but Woodbridge is awesome. Everything down here is better except for the commute and access to pricey restaurants. But I have a like a ginormous mortgage to pay now. I mean, yeah, so pricey restaurants be, are less yeah, on your agenda. It, It'd be worse if I uh, lived in Alexandria, where I would be basically living in a sardine, a vertical sardine can with a postage stamp lawn. <laughs> yeah. uh, but my wedding anniversary is on Saturday, and my wife and I were like going through Yelp and looking at restaurants. And I texted Shannon and I said, "Hey, I know this sounds like a snobby question, but like, what are the best restaurants around here? Because I mean, all, <laughs> all the chain restaurants are good. And it's a good believe- French restaurant." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Shannon made us a reservation at La Bistro Hermitage, which is the good oh restaurant. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so, did, so, so there, there I've called that story. restaurant before. <laughs> there, there's a great story about the restaurant. So on uh, Shannon and JVL's last anniversary, they were going to go to dinner at that restaurant. The we started a DM among everyone to like, so let's buy money for or let's buy dinner for the last. Yeah, and we tried. We tried really hard. Megan called there and like made arrangements to like cover their tab. And, and they somehow... told us. They told us. Oh yeah, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. And Shannon's like DMing us before she goes. I'm so excited. And then she gets back and we're like, Hey, how was dinner? And she's like, Great. Why? Yeah, yeah. We're expecting her to say somebody paid for our meal. Yeah. But nope. they didn't. They didn't. They, they completely <laughs> fucking failed. Did they steal your money? They gave the last their money back. And then, well, and then um, our money went to, like, buy drinks and stuff for all the Weekly Standard employees who just lost their jobs. Oh, like, they, well, like, the last had them all over. And so, yeah. like, we got oh, it. Was, yeah, it was. Oh, right. I, was, yeah. I was there for that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, they, the last had them over for, like, pizza or something like that. And uh, essentially, our money covered that. That was like the worst bender I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, I am happy to have contributed to that. Yes. 
because uh, I remember I took an Uber with Chris and Megs. And uh-huh. uh, because I didn't sign the agreement, I was just like going through old emails and just reading to everyone like the worst of Ryan McKibben, Steve Sparks and other people. I was just like letting it all hang out. It was great. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Jim, I I hate to kick you off, but we need to do a few things before we close right, the podcast. Let's talk about Mortal Engines. He said he saw it. Wait, did you actually see it? I saw the trailer, which is enough for Vic. <laughs> that's, that's <enough>. <laughs> <laughs> My wife, we wanted to go to Alamo Cinema Draft House, so like her plan was to in, do dinner. Din- yeah, to do dinner and a movie, and we looked like a week ago and. The only thing on their schedule was it too. <laughs> and it's good. It's a good date night. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know my wife, and it was like no fucking way. <laughs> and and she was like, well, let's just wait a little bit closer. We're gonna see what's going on. And so we went and looked at the trailer of every single movie that's gonna be playing. I guess now <laughs> since it's Friday tomorrow. And I was just like, you won't like that horror, 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 horror. I'm like. And I'm like, we could go to an early matinee with the Shia LaBeouf movie with the Down Syndrome kid who's Peanut Butter Falcon, you know, which is like a nice heartwarming <laughs> tale. But I'm like, do you really want to spend like the, the only like watchable movie involved Shia LaBeouf and a kid with Down Syndrome? At four <laughs> o'clock. I'm like, is that how you want to spend your wedding anniversary? And she's like, well, let's look at the AMC. And she's like, do they Are have you talking about Peanut Butter Falcon? Yeah, it looks I want to see that. My wife too. and I are going to try to go see that tomorrow. I don't watch a lot of movies in theaters because I hate most other people. I'm I'm more of a put it on my TV kind of thing. Yeah. She's like, do you think they have reclining chairs? I'm like, honey, this is Woodbridge. They had reclining chairs years before they had them in Boston or Alexandria. Yeah. And she's like, okay, okay. And so I confirmed this. And we look at it, and there's like four other movies. I'm like, do you want to see The Lion King? Because that's like basically the only other movie. Or Toy Story. I'm like, our children aren't <laughs> old enough, and they're not coming with us on our anniversary. That's why we're paying $200 for a babysitter. Uh, Jim, uh, great having you on. Uh, thank you for the political commentary, which we admittedly don't do that well. So thank you. Except for me. I do. And humility. Good, good to talk. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jim. Yeah, Bye. thanks, Jim. Thank you. So, we wanted to spend some time on this episode to talk about the movie Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines is a movie from December of 2018 from Peter Jackson and Christian Rivers. It had a production budget of... What from? Like, let's, let's have some, like, accuracy here. He has a screenplay credit. He produced it. And then he Christian, handpicked... Chris, my buddy Chris Miller directed it. Christian. Rivers. Some people call him Christian. C- Rivers. C- Christian Rivers? Christian Rivers. Christian Kirk. Charlie Kirk directed <laughs> Charlie Kirk directed this movie. Christian Rivers directed it. I'm just, I'm just correcting you, Thomas. You can't even just say from. Philip he was Rivers. the special effects designer on um, Peter Jackson's movies, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit movies. Yeah. He designed... That, that, and then he directed, he directed a few shorts before this. But this is the only feature that i cannot believe honestly that he got a feature film after just being a special effects well, guy and Peter jackson wanted to spend more time in the shire smoking and eating second breakfast so he said christian rivers 
my son, you direct this piece of shit. <laughs> Moral Engines had a budget of... It had a budget of $100 million. It made, domestically, it made about $16 million. Is that yes. good? It, it's... Uh... That's a yikes. There were, <laughs> there, were, there were sequels. There were plans for the sequels. And I know about some of the plans for the sequels. You that did your research, huh? That yeah, it's one of the top ten box office bombs of all time. <laughs> it is a... In terms of losses for the... It is a disaster. Yeah, so Hugo Weaving looks so great, though. I mean, think about it. He always um, looks the Matri- great. The Matrix was 20 years ago. He still looks damn good. <laughs> People do not understand what the movie was actually about. I mean, I can either get into my theory now or wait till we start talking about the scenes. But I've got a theory about what the movie is actually about. I do. I do as well. And I think Christian Rivers... We may want to keep an eye on him, like the police. I mean, keep an eye on him, because <laughs> this pervert. Uh, okay, so, so let's... Hugo let... Weaving is a serial killer. That's what uh, Okay, so, so let's hold on to that. So, so Mortal Engines, it's... Whoa, 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 whoa. You asked Ryan. I can't, I can't say my thing. Uh, okay, Chris, go on. I have three things to say about this movie. Three Number one, this is a terrible movie. Number second, two, seconded. I loved watching every second of it. Seconded. <laughs> Number three, I am not watching this movie again. All seconded. three things are true. I, I told you guys earlier today that my hot take, I had a hot take. And my hot take would be that I loved every minute of this movie, <laughs> even though I probably wouldn't watch it again, ever. <laughs> It's like the best worst movie ever. It really is. It's perfect for like just like a takedown. Like yeah. it's I like the idea of it. Like when I was like reading like, oh, cities like on wheels that like devour other cities. Okay, this could be cool. There's no way you could really make this terrible. Oh, they figured out how to make it terrible. <laughs> Thomas, you, you won't know because you don't watch Arrested Development, but you know that Arrested Development episode where Joe, where Michael gives Job a bunch of ideas for for um, for the uh, Sitwell company, and he blows them all in one meeting. And and Michael's like, "That was a year's worth of work I gave you." My my, my theory is that like in the writers' room, like you threw out <laughs> every movie idea they had. Yeah, and they're like, "Let's put these all in the same movie." Like they all did a bunch of coke, and they're like. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we put all these ideas in the same movie? Because, like, it's bonkers. Like, they, they have so much going on. And as we break down the plot, we'll get into all the crazy stuff that, like, shouldn't be in the same movie. That, like, they'll bring in a character and drop that character. Like, there, there's so many coincidences of characters coming in. It's so great. The synopsis of this movie is that it is a post-apocalyptic world where cities are now on wheels as or, cities or, that are just moving about. Except we only know about London. It's steampunk because <laughs> yeah. everything's because. run on steam for some reason. Yeah. Even, you know, a thousand years in the future. Yeah, and, and so we have, we have some, uh, some people that are central to the plot, like uh, Hugo Weaving or Layla George or uh, Hira Hilmar or whatever her name is. And in the future, and I'm telling future, you, after watching this, I'm on board with Matrix Four because Hugo, Hugo Weaving looks great. 
he look he he looks great. He looks. Uh, I'm ready for him to be, you know, Agent Smith in Matrix. <laughs> Do you know who the, the the most important people are in the future? The historians. The historian. For some that, reason, Hugo Weaving, yeah. the historian, he's like number two person in London. So yeah. in the book, so uh, well, we'll get into it when you guys. When you, when you start. We're going to do some spoilers. So if you are dying to see this movie, if you are dying to see this movie, you should Question turn this... yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> T- turn it off right now, but we are going to get into spoilers. All right. So, so Ryan, go on. Okay. So in the first scene, we see the city of London, which is on tank tracks. Yes. Chasing a... S- a much, much smaller city, which is also on tank track. Some small... to ingest. <laughs> <laughs> because, because uh, do you remember the term that they use here? It's called municipal Darwinism. <laughs> right. I don't know how far you want to go, but I'm talking about the Minions characters. There's like the Museum of the Ancients. Right. And the, you see two Minions characters that are, like, rattling around. And the, the, the caretaker of the museum says, like, oh, he grabs them. He says, oh, our American deities. Yeah, these are the Minions from from the movies. From the Despicable Minions. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and, like, he, he holds them, makes sure they don't fall over. Like, oh, our American deities. <laughs> and so what I read was in the book, it's actually Mickey and Pluto in the book. And so what they're saying is, like, be, they they find like you know remnants of American history from the 21st century, and saying like, oh, they spent so much on marketing on these minion movies. Oh, they must be they must have been gods. Like the the uh, like there's a lot of because they also have like relics of like iPhones and stuff like that. And at one point that the Tom character says, uh, I, I I think they I think they um, forgot how to read together because we didn't find many books but we found like all these gadgets yeah and you find like cracked like iphones with like cracked screens but they think that like oh they spent so much money on these minions like marketing on these minions characters which like really like that's what they picked but that, that <laughs> oh they must have worshipped these they they obviously worshipped these minions characters so these were gods to them so we should like protect them as if you know they were religious symbols or something like that. There's the character Tom, which Ryan mentioned, who is working at uh, at the museum, and there's the character of uh, Kate or Catherine, uh, who is going there to do some sort of research, and it's pretty obvious from the beginning that Tom is hitting on Ka- Kate, I guess, yeah. uh, and and trying to uh, appear to play a much bigger role than he actually is because he is he is some like low class commoner who no one actually cares about but he's a piece of shit uh, Kate is from the upper class of London uh, she's the daughter she's Hugo Weaving's daughter yeah and he's a historian and and he's number 2 in the city cuz he's a historian and so <laughs> we get some some exposition right away in, in the form of the historian telling the historian's daughter he tells of the story of the ancients. Of the ancients. Right, we're I, I, the ancients. Just so you guys know, we're the ancients. We we are the ancients? Because, oh. because we use toasters? Is that why? Right. Yes. We oh, because, oh my gosh, they find a toaster and they're so excited. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't work anymore. You know, they... 
and what's interesting is there's there's this like central like tension between the fact that they were able they were able to somehow build a city on wheels and we're talking <laughs> this must be like a thousand feet tall the city and like a mile wide like somehow they got St. Paul's Cathedral a thousand feet off the ground <laughs> and yet they are amazed at a toaster yeah, and, and and the Big Ben, the Big Ben also appears. Big ben, they've got Big Ben there. They've they've got the London landmarks. They've mm-hmm. got beef eaters, but they're like a toaster. Wow, a little a uh, uh, spark plug, amazing. So and so they practice this philosophy called municipal Darwinism, where large predator cities hunt and absorb smaller settlements in the great yes. hunting ground. So. London, we don't meet Paris, we don't meet Vienna or <laughs> Stockholm, we only meet London. But the opening of the movie, we see this giant city of London chasing this smaller German city. city. Yeah, and it is a very small, like the, like just the scale between the two cities is, it, it could fart out the other city. <laughs> yes, and they, the bigger city wants the smaller city. So they can use their resources. So they yep. want their salt. Their salt, yeah. Which they dump uh, as they're being chased to. to but to they, they they do they do assimilate the population. Right. Well, that's just in- that's it. Is is that like they waste all this fuel on this chase, and then they like fire these harpoons and pull in, yeah. and they eat the friggin' city. But they save the people. And Hugo Weaving, the historian, mind you, is there to welcome them. Welcome. You are part of us now. You will be fed. Don't bring any old tech. Don't bring <laughs> old tech. We'll find yeah. you jobs. And and um, there's even someone being rough, a little bit rough, with uh, one of the, the residents of the town mm-hmm. they just captured. And he's like, you're fired. You're fired. You're In fired. Donald Trump's voice. He actually, it's kind of weird. He's very he's populist. Done. You're fired. And so he's, he's just, oh, he's this genteel... Second in command historian who welcomes these. You don't you don't think anything negative of him at all. Not at all. There's no ominous turn. No, no. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, meanwhile, Tom, who who is doing this exposition with Hugo Weaving's daughter, he runs down there to make sure they don't get rid of any old tech. But before yeah, like, he does like that, toasters. Because like, as Tom says, any he he found some he found some old weapons toasters. tech. That he's gonna he, he's gonna throw out. He's gonna make sure is whoa. We don't want any of this stuff. We're gonna. Well, toss I've collected it, out. it all in one place. If he doesn't save it, what happens to it? It gets thrown out. Yeah, and burned. So anyway, like the the you know the first of many things that makes no sense in the movie. Yeah. Well, well so like like there is this part about how the the old world, like the world of the ancients, ended because of the sixty minute war. That involved some sort of devastating weapons that we can't replicate or something like that. Right. And that's what Tom is really scared about. He's, because He's afraid of the 60-minute war. He doesn't want that to come back again. He's afraid of, you know, he doesn't want another hour going on where there's a war. Yeah, because no. toasters. Be a drag. Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely so- toasters. He's right. Like and what? <laughs> and what do you suppose London is able to drive three hundred miles an hour? What sort of fuel do you think it runs on? So other friggin' cities. It just like eats the cities, and they're just like throwing the like the smaller city sans people <laughs> in right. the boiler. Yeah. So and so 
So before, like, before, before they eat, there goes your house, bastard. <laughs> the, 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 the mayor of London essentially says that, yeah, we'll, we'll eat the city, but it will only keep us going for a week. Yeah. They're like, we're going to eat the shit out of the city, but we got to find another city. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we need to keep, uh, keep being predators. So. But, but no one, no one actually others, rethinks the whole like. But there's a spy on that city who is trying to kill Hugo Weaving. Yes, yes. There's yes. a there's a girl with his Can we be back up to the beginning of the show where Hugo Weaving is doing the voiceover? Yes, and he is in the in this. Very, Why is he doing the voiceover? <laughs> it makes no sense. In this very dark voice where we can barely recognize right. him. Admittedly, Hugo Weaving has <laughs> the best voice in this movie, but they, he'd make a good narrator, wouldn't he? He's the bad guy. Hey, yeah. hey spoilers. <laughs> yeah, so so he does the, the narration of it before we get thrown into the plot. We're we are at the point where Hester Shaw like, What was the point? Were they trying to trick us? Like, the, oh, well, he's the narrator, so he can't be the bad guy. It's like, what was the point of that? Hester Shaw, played by uh, Hera Hilmar, is trying to kill Hugo Weaving Valentine. What's his name? Thaddeus Valentine or Thaddeus something Val- like that? Thaddeus Valentine. Tom, played by Robert Sheen. Who, uh, he, and he loves Hugo Weaving. Yes. Oh, he thinks, yeah. like, he's a great, you know... Historian. He's Tom's like, a historian, and Tom's just yeah, a, right, Tom's right. just and like a junior so, historian. Yeah, so he worships at the feet of Hugo Weaving, and he's just like, oh, he's the best guy. Anybody who's trying to kill him, like they're obviously, you know, the bad part of the plot of this movie. And this bitch who just gets rescued <laughs> stabs him in the stomach. She did stab him in the stomach. Apparently, Hugo Weaving doesn't have a problem taking stabs to the stomach. <laughs> he runs around for a long time after getting stabbed in the stomach with no apparent problems. So Tom chases down Hester. Her name is Hester Shaw. And Tom chases her down because he's pissed because he's like, you tried to stab. You you stabbed my historian hero. I'm going to kill you. And then well, she wait starts a second, to wait fall. A but Tom, Tom has a good heart. And he, even though he stab, she stabbed his hero. She still, he still tries to save her and grabs her arm, like just, ju- uh, just like what's that um, Sylvester Stallone movie um, where he's cliffhanger? Uh, I don't know cliffhanger. Yeah, and he he's hanging on to her arm and she's like, uh, Thaddeus, bullshit, killed my mother and all this stuff. And he's like still trying to pull her up and she falls. And then Hugo Weaving makes it just after she falls and is like, oh, what was that shit about? And he was like, oh, <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but she said <laughs> that you killed that her you mom. Killed her mom. Isn't that some crazy shit? He even <laughs> says, he literally says, that's crazy. And Hugo Weaving's like, oh, motherfucker, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and he's like, what? what was that? And so he's like, Tom's just like leaning against the rail. And he's like, which the rail is almost broken already. Tom's leaning against it. And Hugo Weaving's just like, oh, I'm going to kick this rail out. And so he kicks the rail out. Tom starts to fall. 
and Hugo Weaving just gives him the little push that he needs to fall over the edge yeah. down inside. Yeah. Down inside, whatever this out circle, the, out what, the whatever this of thing the... is down here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I don't a... know what it does be, because I've already made a comment that engineers are bad. So I don't know what any of that does. Because well, it's not, the thing it's not that we miss is that she here. ran into the furnace room, like as the thing is being burned, and they run through that to the butthole of the city. <laughs> And they fall out the butthole, which is somehow padded because, like, neither of them, like, they fall, like, 300 feet. Yeah, straight down into this turbine that's just <laughs> turning. That Hugo Weaving has no idea what it does because he doesn't like engineers. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like a garbage chute or some yeah. sort or whatever. Like, it spits out whatever falls into it. Like, Hugo Weaving's like, oh, they're definitely dead. <laughs> <laughs> but they both survive. They're both just like, so oh, oh you, you know, I got a little bruise. I landed in this really, like, soft mud. But other than that, you know, I, as soon as I clean this mud off of me, I'll be okay. Clearly, we love this movie because we've been talking for 20 minutes and we're, like, 10 minutes into the movie. So and Let me just – do you guys want my theory now about Hugo Weaving or do you want it later on? Oh, let's hear it. Hugo Weaving, he he's a serial killer. His master plan with the St. Paul project and all that stuff, that's not to – he's not killing people to cover up the St. Paul project. The St. Paul project is to distract from the fact <laughs> that he just likes killing people because everybody he meets, he's like – he's just like uh, killing people like crazy throughout the movie. Like like the one dude like, – like, like Tom. Like Tom is like on his side. Like uh, he, Tom is like, she is crazy as shit. Can you believe that? Yeah. Too? He's like, all right, I'm gonna kill you. And like, oh, that's <laughs> enough reason for me to kill you. Uh, Hugo Weaving, all the stupid things that he does, like letting the the monster go out, which has the he, the only thing that has the key to allow Hester Shaw to stop his big weapon uh, free, <laughs> because he doesn't want his plan. He murders everyone in that prison. We'll he doesn't that. want his plan to to succeed because that would take time away from his serial killing. Hugo Shaw is a modern day, is a future Jack the Ripper, and he just has this secret plan just to be like, oh, well, yeah, he killed those people, but that was just because they were interfering for the good of all of us. But Hugo Weaving's like, I don't give a shit about the good of all of us. I just want to kill some people. If he wouldn't have pushed Tom down the garbage chute or whatever that was, None of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. None of it. None of this would have Tom happened. Tom was on his side. Tom was like, she's crazy as shit. I don't know what the fuck she was talking about. Oh, this, did this you woman called me an asshole? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> she shows up, stabs my boss, <laughs> yeah. and talks about him killing her mom. I don't even know who she is. He literally tells Hugo Weaving she said the craziest things with her. But but so so can we start to talk about one of the things that was like poorly made or that annoyed me with this movie was the slow mo sequences when Hester Shaw is going in to like stab Hugo Weaving, and right after it she locks eyes with Tom and it's in slow motion for Why? a few seconds Why? and it's like it's so bad it is so poorly is so done. I mean, I've never stabbed anybody. Maybe that's the way it is when you stab somebody. <laughs> Everything's in slow motion, and you lock eyes with the person that's standing next to the guy that you're stabbing. I, I feel like the marketing for this film was totally misleading. Uh, do, do you guys remember seeing the trailer for I this? I never saw the, I, okay. uh, I cannot uh, uh, remember seeing the trailer. I mean, I know I did, but I cannot remember it. 
it made her out to be like this mysterious, like super heroic person. And, and all she was like, you know, she was mysterious. She had her face covered and she had this yeah. knife and it looked like she was going to be like really effective, like an effective assassin, which she got, was not. I got, I got thoughts about that, but we'll get to it later. Like how bad is she is stabbing people that he's just like, he's just like, all right, I'll chase you for another 10 minutes. And like, I'll but give this, it. That's I'm going to, I'm going to chase you for, you know, 10 minutes or so, have a struggle, kill two people, and then I'm going to have a nap. And tomorrow <laughs> I'll head over to the doctor and get uh, this look uh, at because so, you missed so, everything. You had to do that on purpose. So Hester and Tom, they land in the tracks of the city of London. Yes. Where Hester starts to like steal shit off Tom or whatever. But Tom and Hester realize, they, they both realize that they have to work together to ever get back up onto the city. They're on foot. They're on foot. Yeah. The cities are moving at, I don't know, 50 miles per hour or however fast they're moving. And they are supposedly going to catch up to them. Like, like, how the fuck is that going to happen? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I guess we missed a, an important part of exposition in that in the opening, they're like, well, well, who was she? What was her motivation? He's like, oh, she must have been, this is before, or at some point, someone uses the term anti-tractionist. Yes. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, that can't be what it sounds like, is it? <laughs> they're like people who are opposed to cities on wheels. So very quickly, we have the politics of this world. We have people who want static cities. They're anti-tractionists. And, and so it's clearly this movie is made, you know, if, if they're anti-tractionists, they're, it is made by by the, 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 the cities on wheels people, you know. <laughs> they're, if they're the anti, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, because on a, on a TV monitor, they display uh, Anna Fang, who is an anti-tractionist, and she is opposed to cities on wheels. Damn anti-tractionists. <laughs> Those anti-tractionists. So we, we see the, the lay of the land here. So you've got the big cities, you've got the smaller trading settlements, and then you've got the southies and the scavs. You've got kind of these, these, these smaller cities on wheels. If you're not on wheels, you're nothing. So Tom and Hester... And Tom makes that speech about, and the end of it is... And now I'm thinking about drinking my own urine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because which, which is great. Like for mug. anybody who thinks about leaving the the, the cities on wheels, says there should be an infomercial. I mean, like you think it's so you want to leave? Like you know we're going to be drinking our own piss out here, right? Like <laughs> anybody want a glass of my yesterday's piss? Great. That's yeah. all we've got. So she's drinking from a puddle. She's drinking from a puddle, and he's like. That's disgusting. And she's like, listen, thirst will kill you before hunger. It's either this or you could drink your own urine. And he says, I'll take my own chances. And then what happens? So they're like, they they go from bickering to she pulls out an inky. Her penis. Oh. An inky. <laughs> what is an inky? It it is a it is a thousand year old Twinkie ball or something. Yeah. So the tea, yeah, the tea is worn off. It's a, and, Tom, it a and Tom says, this says best best uh, used by 2118. And he's like, that's a thousand years ago. 
she's like, doesn't it's matter. Like, the food of the does, ages never it goes never off. Never goes bad. It's indestructible. <laughs> Why didn't they just call it a Twinkie? Because it's funny, Ryan. Don't you get it? <laughs> nah. We're off. So night falls. Hester is asleep. Tom is on top of the tracks, and he's <laughs> hearing something. He's hearing something approaching, and he's waving at them, and he's like, I'm here, I'm here, like, come save us, whatever. And, I live in London. I'm an important person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what he doesn't realize is that these people that are approaching are Southies. Southies. Like, they are people from South They South might Boston. take you to somewhere like, called Rust Market Farms. <laughs> <laughs> Rustwater Market. Rustwater yeah, Market. These Southies from South London, it's like Ben Affleck and his brother. They're mm-hmm. like chasing after them and trying the great to. Great Casey Affleck. And they're, they're trying to like shoot them or something, like capture them. But Hester and Tom manage to escape them and they are saved by the, the scuttlebug. Is that what it's called? The scuttlebug. Sounds right. In the scuttlebug, there is this lovely old couple that's... What are you on, then? Don't mind if I do. It did turn into a Monty Python sketch for a while. <laughs> the algae is fresh. Tom tastes some of the tea that they are offering them and say that, Oh, this doesn't taste so bad. Funny you should say that. <laughs> it is, we grow it in the sewer. Do you want to bang her in the mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Featherbottom <laughs> showed up in this movie. We grow to the runoff under the sewage room. <laughs> I think this is the first time I said, fuck you, movie. <laughs> or fuck off, movie. <laughs> Anyway, they get taken to this slave market, which is Rust Rustwater Market. As soon as we get off the train, some old pervert says, Welcome to Rustwater Market. I'm like, oh, thank you for telling us where we are. <laughs> so, so can we talk for a second about how stupid the names of the cities are? In this sure. And then let me talk about the appearances of the people at Rustwater Market. Yeah, like, like there's the Rustwater Market. And then there's like Panzerstadt, and there's um, <laughs> what is it? Uh, something Panzer like uh, that's what, what he said. It? Panzer like Panzer State. Panzer uh, it's the the Howitzers of Panzerstam. <laughs> <laughs> there's something called the Shield Wall. It's yeah. both a wall and a shield. Yeah, so, yeah. There's, there's, there, there, it's a wall that's Russ- also a shield. <laughs> Rustwater Market is a slave um, is a slave auction, and the the guy running the auction, the auction master, takes off Hester's mask, and she's got you know she's got a scar on her face, like you know a mild to medium scar, and he calls her a swamp donkey. Now the movie <laughs> the movie calls her a swamp donkey, and must completely ignore everyone else at the market. Because everyone else at the market looks like a monster, like a straight-up monster. She is a good-looking girl with a scar on her mouth, and the rest of the market is just, like, pure shit. And they're like, oh, my goodness, because later on he calls her a dollop, 
what does he call her? A doll, like a a a a, a dollop, something, a dollop, a, a soggy dollop. He calls her a soggy dollop, and I'm just and the guy who like tries to buy her is like a monster. He looks like a monster. Like his whole face is a scar. <laughs> Look at her. Can you believe this? What the yeah. fuck? And, and he offers he offers like four dollars for right. her or something right. like that. She has been because yeah the the. <laughs> The, the slave auctioner says, she's been priced accordingly. And I'm just like, okay. Mike, I saw the last person you auctioned off, and you called her Tatty. Does that mean it was like an old woman with like, you know, her breasts were hanging like way down. Is that what Tatty means? What happens at this auction? So then Fang shows up. Best character in the movie, I would say. And she shows up and just starts. First she starts bidding, but then apparently she has a... She has a price in her head for because she bids. Uh, <laughs> she, she bids like five hundred, whatever their whatever their unit of money is. She bids yeah. five hundred, and the auctioneer says like, "Well, that's not fifty thousand, whatever the fuck we call money, because you're worth fifty thousand, whatever the fuck we call money." And I'm gonna say if you don't give me fifty thousand, whatever the fuck we call money, then I'm gonna turn you in for fifty thousand, whatever the fuck we call money. And she says, "How about I choose the buy it now feature?" Is that an eBay joke? Because she says, <laughs> "How about we choose the buy it now feature?" And she's and she just shoots him. And she I, shoots him. Once she said the buy it now, um, I was just like, "Fuck you, movie," or "Fuck." <laughs> so so you didn't say that when. Even though they had no idea that they were heading there, somehow Fang, like, until, like, two seconds, yeah, literally that, two seconds before, she knew that they were going to be there. Did she know Fang? Because she didn't seem to know Fang at all. But but Fang, Fang came there to she, get who, who she, shop. Knew who she was, who was like, raised by a robot because, zombie. Because, because, rewind just a little bit to when, hello, you're in our, you're a prisoner now. Um, when they're with that couple that that saved them only to kidnap them to sell them into slavery. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what did they get out of this? We're, what we're those, gonna. What did those two horrible old people get out of this? Well, here's the deal. So we we're gonna rescue. Here's you. an extra gonna, scoop of slop for you. We're gonna rescue you, and then we're gonna lock. Hey, you guys sleep in this cell-looking thing at the back of our, you know, truck. We're gonna here. lock this door, and you didn't see that coming because you're both dipshits. Meanwhile, two things are happening. Number one, the the grand historian, um, he his daughter is is doing some detective work. So we've got that going on, and then we have Hugo Weaving going to this prison where where the robot zombie the robot zombie is, and he wants to free the robot zombie so it will because its goal in life. Is to kill Hester Shaw. Sure. There's no way that this is going to backfire and give her the only thing that can stop my weapon. I'm going to let the robot zombie free. The way he lets it free is to destroy the entire prison, killing all thousands of prisoners. I'm telling you, he's a serial killer. And the the robot zombie falls to the bottom of the ocean and walks out of the ocean, all badass-like. This thing is a homing device where it can find Hester Shaw. And it shows up just as Fang shows up. But what do they think this thing is? They think it's an anti-tractionist. Because so, there's voices saying, what's the problem? Oh, it's anti-tractionist. Anti-tractionist. 
And then they're and then they realize, no, it's not. It's a resurrected man. Fang does her Lando Calrissian, and she points a loaded weapon at Tom's face, and she's like, and then she's like, I'm just kidding. I don't understand gun safety. I'm gonna blow <laughs> this loaded weapon at your face as a joke. <laughs> so Fang and Tom and Hester Shaw get away, and suddenly we realize that they have airplanes. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. world of like where they think like a spark plug and a toaster are really special. <laughs> Suddenly we realize that they have conquered flight. And there's a whole goddamn city in the sky. <laughs> there's a and what's what's the city named? It's like Airtown. Yeah, it's like it's named Airtown. Balloon City. <laughs> no, the dome. Yeah. Let's back up a bit. So uh, Hugo Weaving releases. Uh, Shrike from the prison. Shrike, yes. And 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 Shrike is holding on trying to find. He Hester is going Shaw. to kill because he says as Hester Shaw broke her promise. Yes. So, which I gotta. I, I'm sorry to tell you, he never explains what that promise is, uh, other than like she just didn't want to die with him. Oh, I don't know. But she's like, she's like, she. He says. Hester Shaw broke her promise. And so he's just like, and Hugo Weaving's like, all right, so what do you want to do about that? And he's just like, I want to kill Hester Shaw. And Hugo Weaving's like, all right, I'm going to kill everybody else in this prison. I'm going to let you go. You can kill Hester Shaw. How does he even know she's alive? He's a robot zombie, obviously. So how, how does Hugo alive. Weaving know? Remember, last he knew, he kicked her out the butthole of the, that, of the city. That is, I, you know what? I wrote that down, too. Which, <laughs> he thinks that he killed them. He kicked them both out the... He He's like, they both went down that spinny thing that I don't understand because I hate engineers. There's uh, so no they way would have survived that. They have to be dead. But, you know what? Just in case. <laughs> This monster that I'm, I'm going to travel over to this prison, which is way out of my way, taking time from me serial killing to let this monster go. Just I'm going to risk my career as a historian by <laughs> blowing up this prison. Somehow, after walking for, I don't know, a day, two days, like, this is never clear to me. Like, how long does it actually take to walk? How long are they walking? Like, like this isn't clear to me. But anyway... They I think it's like fifteen hundred miles. That's my yeah. guess. Yeah. So they are at the sleigh market, and Anna Fang comes to save them. Right? Okay. Yes. And but so Shriek also shows up at the sleigh market. Right. Right. But before Shrike shows up, Anna Fang hands uh, Hester Shaw a gun, and yeah. Hester Shaw uses the gun to to shoot the cuffs off of. Right. Like how. <laughs> How good of a shot is she? I've never shot this before. I was just handed it to me. Let me aim it at you and shoot your fucking cuffs off. She should have been like, I was trying to shoot you in the head. I gotta be honest. (laughs) And then Hester Shaw, who was too injured to jump off the sofa, somehow manages to jump up the wheels of one of the big cities. At a good slave auction, they're gonna they're they're gonna heal you at a good slave auction, you know. Like they treat you right. <laughs> she couldn't jump twenty feet. That's what he said. Literally. Tom is like, it's just a twenty foot drop. And she's like, I'll never make it. I'll never <laughs> make it. Go without me. 
just get out of here, you son of a bitch. And Tom's like, all right, well, I guess I can't leave you. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah and so, so he stays behind. Let's <clears throat> anyway, yeah, and so after the slave auction, after Anna has killed, like, I don't know, 10 people or something, right. they start yeah, to they jump. Blast, they blast Shrike with a huge, some kind of huge weapon. Yep. Blast Shrike. But that doesn't kill him. That just knocks him back so they can get away. Yeah, and they are then trying to get away from him, and they are jumping up the wheels, trying to yep. get onto a city, and they're trying to escape from him. At some point, we are told, I guess like through a flashback or something, that Shrike actually was the one who saved Hester Shaw. He raised Hester Shaw. And yeah. he loves her because he said, you are sad, Esther Shaw, one time. <laughs> and so, obviously, he loves her. But in between then, we get a flashback to Hugo Weaving, back to his serial killing, because <laughs> some... What, what's that kid's name that's like, hey, I have some old tech for you, and, you know, I want a promotion. And Hugo Weaving's like, I'm fucking busy. But then he stops, and he's like, I really should be looking for Hester Shaw, but this would be a great chance to kill this dude for trying to blackmail me, <laughs> blackmail me. And more than anything, I love killing people. So, <laughs> and then we flash back to Fang takes Tom and Hester to this uh, cloud city. It's Lando's city in the sky. Yep. And they're all good there. Lenny Kravitz is like says like who are these people and then <laughs> Lenny Kravitz is like uh, alright well I'll take you over here let's get something to eat and she's like yeah Lenny Kravitz leave them alone they are my friends I like her and but before long Shriek or Shrike I keep calling him Shriek but Shrike shows up again and so Shrike Shrike kills what like um 10, 12 people that are supposed to be on Hester Shaw's side, and she, yeah. she's like, no, no, stop shooting him, stop shooting him. <laughs> like, like Shrike and Hester Shaw are in a total abusive relationship. She, she's like, no, I love him, he loves me, and like, and Shrike is just like throwing people to their death out of Cloud City. Essentially destroys Cloud yeah. City. Then he sets Cloud City on fire, and finally, but she stops him, like where what? she's just like no because she's about to ki- he's about to kill tom and she's just like no don't kill him and so then he just stops like where were you like a dozen of your friends ago <laughs> and- yeah so so because she supposedly quote unquote loves tom sure. strike is Shrike's like you care, whatever he says. I can't even, I didn't write it down. Yeah, like, you care about him, or you love him, yeah. or whatever, and he stops, and dies, I guess. Right? Like, yeah, like he, he gets shot, like, while he's pausing to take a break to talk to Hester, somebody else shoots him, like, through his robot zombie heart, <laughs> and, um, and then, like, he gives her He's like, okay, this is. I release you from your promise, which I don't know what the fuck a promise was, but he's like, I release you from your promise. Here is the key to destroy Hugo Weaving's weapon. The promise was by Hester Shaw to become a cyborg. 
Yeah, sure. Like, like that... to become just like Shrike. She sees pictures of Shrike of when he was still alive to where he was an actor with a kid who was an actor. And she's like, oh, he loved someone once. She said, I made him a promise. I would become like him. My flesh would become steel. My nerves would become wire. My mind wiped clean. No thoughts. You let me promise that I could kill you. Yeah. And because you broke your promise. (laughs) I'm I'm going to kill you. At least one of the big twists in the show or in the movie, right? Is that we find out that. What? Yeah, like Shrike. Raised Hester. He was yeah. her, her her cyborg zombie daddy. Yeah, that her mo- that Hugo Weaving killed her mother when she was just eight years old. And and um, Shrike my daddy's chewed up, chewed my up, and spit zombie. out. You know, um, he would like chew up worms and spit them into her mouth, and he sure. nursed her at his teat. As you do, as as a zombie cyborg does. But so she's about he's about to kill Tom and she's just like, no, stop. And he stops. <laughs> like, I don't know why she didn't That's think the key of that. To kill like, cyborg. A you dozen of her stop. friends ago. He's set Cloud City on fire at this point. This he's about to kill Tom. He's about to kill Tom. And she can't go that far. She's like, sure, kill hundreds of people. But <laughs> Before you kill Tom, let me say one thing. Stop. Oh, shit. I didn't think you were going to say that. Like, that's that. Hester Shaw. Hester. Okay, so did, you, did you guys like the, the medicine that uh, Fang, like, in, like, so she has this, so uh, Hester Shaw has this injured leg in the aircraft, and she, like, sprays, like, this spray on it. It's like, heals, like, this, like, everybody. Here you go. Let me spread this is this is 100% semen. Let me just clear this up right now for you. Like <laughs> you won't get like, Don't worry. Like the lady in the with the tea. Um, she you know everybody, including her, remarked about how deep this cut was on her leg. Like her legs rotting and falling off. And Fang is like, here's just spritz of this stuff. It's, here's an here's an essential oil for you. <laughs> Holy God, we're gonna have to amputate that. Let me spray this bullshit on here oh <laughs> you're fine so so Shrike uh, dies and Cloud City is still on fire yeah. <laughs> but, but it's 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 okay because it's all salvageable of them, it's salvageable yeah, they lost yeah. maybe you know 50 to 100 people yeah but who, who gives a shit it. who gives a shit all of them Flies to extras. China. They were all extras. Yes, yeah. all of them flies to China, or uh, what? What is it called in the movie? Shanguel. Shanguel. Yeah. Like they fly to China, which is safe behind the shield, the shield wall. wall. Shrike gives her the key to stop um, Hugo Weaving's. Uh, quantum weapon because at some point Tom explains to the cloud city that oh your mom found a computer core that could control a quantum weapon that's why Hugo Weaving killed her not because he's a serial killer but because (laughs) he wanted that and like it's definitely that's what he wanted he didn't want that to distract (laughs) from the fact that he was a serial killer modern day Jack the Ripper no 
he he wanted to to start a war, but everything he does, including letting Shrike loose to give Hester Shaw the one thing that could stop his weapon. No, there's no way he meant that on purpose so that his weapon could be stopped so that he could go back to serial killing, which is his one true love. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what Brian is talking about here and what Hester Shaw receives is like a bracelet or no, not a bracelet, a, a locket or pendant? something like that. Sure. A pendant? Pendant, locket, all, yeah. all, all of the above. Yeah. A bracelet, a, locket, a, pendant. I think it's a Pandora charm bracelet. The first, the first ever because her mom's name is Pandora. Pandora. At the same time, we see what's her name, Layla George and Beavis Pod, whatever his actual name you're, is. You're using names nobody knows. Kate was the Just say Hugo, Hugo Weaving's, Weaving's daughter. Is Kate Catherine. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, so Hugo Weaving's daughter, Layla George who is yeah. really hot, by the way, uh, and Beavis Pod, they yeah. go to St. Paul's Cathedral and discover but, but that... But the, the, secret, the secret passageway, though. The secret passageway. Through the museum. Yes. That, that guy shows her two secret passageways that night. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they discover that Hugo Weaving is actually building a secret weapon based on ancient tech that will be able to destroy the wall or a whatever. A quantum he weapon. A quantum weapon. That's the thing. He's going to anyway, take down that wall. Yeah. So they discover that. And then we quickly cut back to Hester and Tom, who is in China at this point. Still not banging. No, not even, uh, even though like Tom has been wanting to bang her from the beginning, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. Tom wanted to bang Hugo Weaving's daughter in the beginning. First, yeah, he did. Yeah. But then, once Hester Shaw was like, you know, Hugo Weaving killed my mom, he was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have sex with you. China decides to launch an air defense against yeah. the moving city of London. There's, here's here, here's there, where there's really... so much steampunk going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> You'll forget all about Sonny Bunch's favorite movie. Hugo Weaving and the City of London, they they fire their quantum weapon at the wall twice. Yep. Twice. So this is the same weapon. Well, okay, so first of all, this is the same weapon that was the 60-minute war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the it same weapon that destroyed the whole 60-minute war, and only one side has it now, but somehow... And it blows up like... That's a big wall. wall. That's a strong. That's a Trump wall. That's, that's, couldn't, couldn't take that down wall, Trump. It's going to take like three shots to take down the wall. Yeah, well, I mean, the wall that, just got fifteen feet higher every time they shoot it. Yeah, well, the yeah, weapon. We, the we, we, hang on, Chris. The, the weapon is made out of fucking toasters. Yeah. <laughs> and where does it come from, yes. Thomas? He said, "Plug in the toasters." <laughs> And he says, plug in the toasters and the dome of Christopher Wren's cathedral is magnum opus. <laughs> the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. Hang on. Let's pause a second. We're all going to start a, position, a petition that uh, Christian Rivers never directs another movie again, right? That, that's going to happen. <laughs> like, what would be the coolest thing? Like, where should the weapon fire from? 
like the dome of cathedral. Right. So, it's so open even up, and this this electric condom is gonna come out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, in my notes, it literally says, "Finally, someone is putting a church to good use." Oh my god! <laughs> before before they release the weapon. There is this showdown between Hugo Weaving and the current mayor of London. Yes. Where and, and Hugo Weaving just has like a, an automatic pistol <laughs> that he just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's dead. Yeah, and and he essentially he he says something like, "There are no lessons to be learned from the past. History yeah. doesn't care." <laughs> Oh. Well, like, is, is this some sort of progressive manifesto about how history doesn't matter? I like, don't know what Peter Jackson is even thinking anymore. Like, I've never seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies. I've never seen the Hobbit movies. So, <laughs> this is my only evidence that Peter Jackson does movies. And I'm like, let's kick him out of Hollywood. Never, <laughs> yeah. well, never again. So, what, so, so Ryan, you you mentioned Rivers earlier. We'll we'll get back to him. We'll get back to him. I promise you. But yeah. anyway, so so they are shooting at the wall, and while they are shooting at the wall, I think it's like four or five planes or airships or whatever they call them sure. that are attacking the city of London. Steampunk flying machines. Yeah, the <laughs> the these four five machines is able to destroy almost every single defense yeah. from the city of London. How? I they're, don't know. I don't know how, it, but they're it, able to... They're like Tom Cruise and Top Gun pilots. They're the best. <laughs> they're the best. They all went to Miramar and attended Top Gun Flight School. So Hugo Weaving couldn't have known that. Yeah. And, and, and so Hester Shaw is able to get into the cathedral... She's able she to, she's able to plug her flash drive <laughs> into the computer. The kill switch. Yeah, she's got that thumb drive with the kill switch on it. <laughs> yeah, and she's able to disable Medusa or whatever the hell it's called. Sure. Well, let's be honest. Why would you make a super weapon? Weapon unless you made us a, a thumb of drive. Of course, you've got to have a it. thumb drive with. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be able to be killed by a thumb drive. That's what given to a of- zombie robot who <laughs> happened to be the father figure to your arch nemesis. <laughs> who raised her from age eight. Yeah. And of course, it, would, it wouldn't be very dramatic to just plug in the kill switch and have it work. You gotta, you gotta type in the code. You gotta wait like eight seconds for each. <laughs> the code, the code, I don't know if you guys saw her typing in the keys. It said... Christian Rivers bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so she types that in, I don't know, five times, <laughs> and eventually she disables the, the weapon, and it starts to destroy itself, and Hugo Weaving, after, he, eating, after beating Anna Fang, realizes that he's defeated. Well, his daughter thinks he's defeated, because his daughter says... We stopped the weapon. That wall's staying up. And Hugo uh, Weaving says, you don't know me at all. You're not my daughter anymore. <laughs> he has so, his crew go in and machine gun the pilot. The, yes, everybody the, in, like, <laughs> everybody, like, running the... <laughs> yeah, the control room to the to London, which, again, 
you can't forget London is on tank tracks. <laughs> heading and, 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 and it's at least a mile wide. Like it yeah. is huge. The air defenses were shit. It's it's like they took lessons from the the scorpions in Game of Thrones. Like they can't they can't hit shit. They're garbage. They <laughs> Never and then you have this really lame scene where Layla George, Hugo Weaving's daughter, is like, he's not my father anymore, or something <laughs> like, like that. That's exactly what she said. She was like, because the one guy, the other guy, I can't remember his name anymore, that was trying to get her out of there, was like, let's go. We got to get out of here. And she's like, no, I got to go back. She's like, no, your father will kill you or something. And she's like, He's not my father anymore. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't. I didn't even know you had a DNA test done. But okay, well, let's go back then. She she definitely did. Uh, friend twenty three and me. Twenty three and me. <laughs> so so Hester Shaw somehow kills or pushes Hugo Weaving uh, off right. the aircraft, yeah. makes him land in front of the city, and has him squished. Squished. But, by the city of London. I guess yep. that's what happened, right? Yep. Hugo Weaving's daughter, Layla George, manages to stop She's the like, city. Yeah. She gets on the it. she gets on the she gets it she gets on the air traffic control headsets and she's like, You gotta <laughs> talk me through stopping this city. I don't wanna run into the wall. And air traffic control is like, Okay, London, we have you <laughs> we have you driving towards the wall right now. Go ahead and put on the brakes. And she's like, okay, I did that. That's all it is. Good job. Don't take too much credit. You're still pretty stupid. Yeah, and then... and then, No, no, she says the brakes are gone. They're dead. Right, yeah. You're going to have to I cut forgot. London's engines. I can't. The controls are shot to hell. That, yeah, because Hugo, you, you Hugo Weaving something. had his men go in and shoot all, the, shoot all the people and shoot the controls. That's right. I don't actually remember what they did, but they did yeah. something. The city stops like 10 feet in front of the wall or something like that. Like, it's very close. The movie was really a support of Trump's wall. (laughs) (laughs) Tom and Hester flies off in their space uh, flying machine, whatever. And they're going to live happily ever after. Layla George, Hugo, Hugo Weaving's daughter, seems like she's doing just fine. And everyone's so just happy. No big deal that my whole life I looked up to my father. Turns out like he was this evil guy. I'm over that. No problems there. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely not gonna turn into a bad person. Yeah. So so Chris, what what did you think? Like it said, it's a terrible movie. I loved every minute of it and I will never watch it. The, the, here's my the, here's my, the phrase. The howitzers of Panzerstam <laughs> are in this group. I mean, you got to um, see it. Just... Well, but like, I also love this this piece of dialogue here. Um, they're, they're in the plains, like, and they realize they got to go into the church for the kill switch thing. Right. And so the boy who wanted to be a pilot someday but ended up being a historian because <laughs> his parents died is suddenly flying this plane. And she says, okay, city boy, take her from here. And he's like, what? She's like, I've got to go. I'm late for church. Wait, wait. When he actually does fly Fang's plane, and, like, they're in mid-air, mid-flight, and 
he start he like takes over the controls for like two seconds, and she's like, "Oh, you're pretty good at this." Why? Because he didn't immediately nose down into the ground. Like what the fuck? She's like, "Oh, why don't you go ahead and land this?" Yeah, that movie so he... should have ended with when she said, "Why don't you go ahead and land us?" Him just like bringing it in for the landing, and then pff, the entire plane blows up. Like, well, you flew oh, this for two seconds. You must know how to land this thing. Oh, you didn't immediately push the stick down and uh, send us into a dive? Wow, <laughs> you're a great pilot. Like, there is so much dialogue in this movie that's just terrible. It is so bad. All of it's terrible. Is- <laughs> yeah. But, but oh, it's just tea from the sewage. <laughs> <laughs> a baby in the mouth. <laughs> On some level... I loved every minute of this movie. I like, liked the idea of this movie. Like, like cities, cities on wheels. I'm like, yes, let let me see this. But they never really explain like why. No, that well, Chris. They said they said the 60 minute war like two times. So <laughs> that's all the explanation you need. I sort of liked initially when Tom is uh, walking uh, George Miss uh, Valentine around the museum i sort of like that part like he is sort of telling the history of what happened you have the 60 minute war the world used to look this way they don't ever get to the point where they explain why some people end up on these cities and why some people like the chinese the anti-attractionists they they manage to live on the ground they don't at all they don't just, explain. And then you have the people in between who have the smaller cities on wheels. Yeah, it's just like we're just against them. And like uh, so in the book, like Hester Shaw was supposed to, like her entire nose was supposed to be missing and like or no, oh, like right. her entire eye was supposed to be missing and like almost all of her nose was supposed to be missing. But the, for the movie they're they're just like People don't want to see that shit. So they're like, let's just give her a scar. But yeah. they still pretended. They still they still treated her like, you know, her eye and her nose were missing. And like, <laughs> but they're like, that, we don't have the makeup like, budget for that. Here's here's like here's a Hollywood actress with like, you know, just a little scar on her face. Let's pretend she's uglier than all of these people that we horribly disfigured. But somehow Tom doesn't notice. Yeah. Tom's like, oh, you're. I'm kind of into that. Uh, well, well, so, so I love scars. <laughs> so, 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 here's, so, so, I told Chris uh, before we started recording that I have a hot take. I'm not sure it's actually that hot, but what I would have liked to see is just a movie or maybe a show. I think a show would be better. Just a show about living on one of these moving cities. I think yeah, that would I, be that, great. That's what I'm saying. Like the idea of it is in just that. Like, just give me a day in the life, like of every Mrs. week. Mrs. Featherbottom. Of, yeah, of Mrs. Hey, Featherbottom living on a movie city, and that's just like that's the same critique I have of uh, the movie Oblivion with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise lives in this um, world where Earth is abandoned, but he's down there just to like. Um, keep drones running and to fight off scavengers from killing the drones. And then there's some, some whole other plot that if you've seen the movie, you know what it is, but I'm saying 
I want just the movie where Tom Cruise and his wife are just on Earth, and Tom Cruise. It could just be called Tom Cruise Drone Repairman, and just goes out <laughs> and like just you know he because he goes to like a football stadium that's like you know mostly torn down, and he like relives like a, you know a famous moment from a football game that he saw, and like like that that like just give me a day in the life of Tom Cruise drone repairman and just on on deserted earth but the whole rest of the movie ah fuck off all right so so i told you that we would get back to uh, christian rivers who is the director of this movie well i mean my only the only thing i really know is just that he's this was his first not just feature film this was his first movie he directed a couple like internet shorts Sure. And then before yeah. that, he was just the um, the special effects designer for Peter Jackson on like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. He and, he worked he worked with Peter Jackson on a lot of different movies. Yeah, it's like like I think like Peter Jackson was supposed to direct this, but he was just like, I'm not like I've had enough miss I've had enough misses already. Did you see King Kong? <laughs> so hey Christian, how would you like to direct? And like he just put his weight behind Christian and was like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to let him direct this because it is a disaster and I don't want to be blamed for this one. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense to to hand a hundred million dollar movie yeah. to a first time director. <laughs> right. Who's like, yeah, he's not even like like, OK, so he's directed a few feature films. Few shorts, you know. You know, no, I'm saying like if it was a director that it had at least directed some feature films, he knows what it's he knows what it's like to deal with the budget of a feature film and deal with the schedule of a feature film. He's like, oh, he's directed some shorts, which you know his dipshit college roommates had their iPhones out and were like recording for two days. Like, I cannot believe that they gave. That they gave this movie to him because again i i like the idea of it i think it could have been better maybe not maybe maybe with like what was maybe with the script this was the best that it could get it, it's but, a, it, isn't isn't it amazing that they did they did all of this without cgi <laughs> <laughs> they built <laughs> london <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, so so we all watched this on uh, HBO, and uh, the the preview on HBO was for his dark materials. Right, and I do have some background information on this. So um, they didn't know what they were going to call that HBO show for a long time, and everybody knows it like has you know a little bit of uh, Harry Potter flavor for it. Um, the working title for like the first six months of filming was um, Harry Potter Full Penetration. <laughs> Still do with that what you want. I swear to you, as I was watching this trailer, that this was the Golden Compass. Because yeah. didn't the Golden Compass have a polar bear and skepticism about like yeah. religious authority. And wasn't there like a golden compass that was handed out in, in this trailer? I think so. Yeah. And I mean, I was like, oh, I thought, are they redoing I thought the it was like compass? Hunger games. Like those, 
Those those dogs look like Hunger Games uh, animals. Just like Google the Golden Compass, and you'll know. Like, there's a bunch of images of this like big polar bear with armor on. Yeah, yeah. It, it, isn't the Golden Compass the movie with um... Tom Hanks? No, 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 no. That this movie. No, no. Uh, Nicole Kidman and uh, Daniel Eva Craig. Green? Your girl Eva Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Eva you're Green. Right. You're yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I thinking of with Tom Hanks? Um, no, no, you're thinking about uh, it's something that's very similar. Animated. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you go, Chris. No, no. What is it called? You know what it's called. Yeah, I know what it's called. The it's train different. movie with Tom Hanks. Oh, oh, the Uncanny Valley movie. Um, Tom <laughs> Hanks train movie. That's what I'm searching. Christmas Bing. Polar Express. Polar Express. That's it. That's it. That's yeah. Okay. That's. I saw the preview or the trailer for his Dark Materials, and watching it, I thought that this seems sort of like a dark, more serious Harry Potter. Yeah. It, it it like it seems sort of interesting. Like it's something I might actually watch. I'm definitely gonna watch it. So I'll as soon as it comes out. Do you guys watch The Righteous Gemstones on HBO? Danny McBride, John Goodman, um, Walton I've, Walton Coggins is in it. Yeah, I've, I've seen the first episode. Wait, there's Walton Goggins? Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm going to watch come, it. He comes in in the third episode. I, I like it. It's funny. It's like Danny McBride sold it to HBO as the trilogy of um, Eastbound and Down, Vice Principals, and The Righteous Gemstones. And I watched all of those shows. And Jody Hill... And uh, Danny McBride created all three of those shows. So I believe that is all the time we are giving to this penultimate episode of the SSEU podcast. Uh, Chris, Ryan, do you have anything else? No, I just go watch Mortal Engines on HBO now. We uh, we thank and uh, the login is <laughs> <laughs> just just. GM Ryan. We uh, we thank uh, Jim for jumping on and chatting with us about politics for a little bit. That was uh, amazing. We will see you again next week for the last episode of the SSEU podcast. Good night, everyone. I got to be honest. I wasn't sad until this week that we're going to be done. I'm nothing special, in fact, I'm a bit of a bore If I tell a joke, you've probably heard it before But I have a talent, a wonderful thing Cause everyone listens when I start to sing I'm so grateful and proud all I want is to sing it out loud So I say thank you for the music The songs I'm singing Thanks for all the joy they're bringing Who can live without it? I ask in all honesty What will I be without a song? Thanks, what are we? So Thank you.
yes, look at my IKEA couch. It's so <laughs> nice. So black, you can't even see it. I have black carpet. <laughs> if you're cold, you can bring over the red sheet. Thomas just wants us to see his IKEA flipping fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, this is the best in Swedish technology. That so, is Netflix and chill. <laughs>